My name is Paul Cowland, and I think what I do is so hard to describe. I just have a go-to, which is I'm a professional car enthusiast, basically, because I do so many things in and around the car community and the car world. Yeah. And it's so difficult to describe them all or to give them one classification. So I am very so I basically am a car enthusiast that gets paid to paid do to. what all of us car enthusiasts just want to do anyway, which is just hang out with cars. Click record, just because we're having a chat anyway, and that's the whole purpose. It's so, generally how podcasts work. Yeah. So this one, I don't have any questions lined up for you. I've not done any research. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not very good. <laughs> but the idea is that we just have a casual chat. I like that. I like podcasts like that. Just yeah. make it up as it comes. Yeah. It's one of those where it's like sitting with your mates in the pub, just chinwagging. That's yeah. the whole idea. Is that this acts as a like a an example of how easy conversation can be and it doesn't have to be daunting yeah because that's the whole purpose of what i do is just go look it's not scary to talk it's okay you're allowed to do it and the more people engage with that idea the more widespread it might become so there is one question that i ask my guests and it's the same for everyone who are you and what do you do my name is paul cowland and i think what I do is so hard to describe. I just have a go-to, which is I'm a professional car enthusiast, basically, because I do so many things in and around the car community and the car world. Yeah. And it's so difficult to describe them all or to give them one classification. So I am very so I basically am a car enthusiast that gets paid to paid do to what all of us car enthusiasts just want to do anyway, which is just hang out with cars, build cars, photograph and shoot cars. Exhibit cars. So you just live in the dream, then. I'm very lucky. Yeah, I am very, very lucky. I've done this pretty much my entire life. I left school. I joined the most trade in 1993. Right. Selling cars, and and it's sort of it's grown from there, really. But the passion that's driven through. When I started as a junior car salesman at the Saab Garage in Nottingham, all these old, lagged, tired salesmen who've obviously been doing it a long time. They've kind of lost their joy and they've lost their mojo for the motor trade, and they're just they're almost turning up, sell a car, and pay a mortgage. Yeah. Everybody said the same thing when I started as this fresh-faced kid. You'll get bored of cars in five years. You won't feel the same. You won't have the enthusiasm that you've got now when you're older. Because they didn't. Yeah, yeah. And what's bizarre is actually nearly 30 years later, next year is my 30th year in the trade. I think I'm more enthusiastic now than I was then. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And that, that's obviously what's driven you forward throughout doing what you do. Yeah, I'm very lucky because I just have this... Every morning, I just wake up, if I'm sitting there at night, I'm just reading a car magazine or looking on car websites or following car social media feeds. Yeah. So my, it's almost my sleeping thoughts and my waking thought, obviously, apart from my lovely family, is most cars, basically. So I just, you know, things I want to do, cars I want to buy, restorations I'd like to undertake, yeah. TV show ideas, magazine feature ideas, online video feature ideas, whatever it is. So much stuff. That never goes away. And obviously, the way that the world's evolved now, it used to be there were just car TV and you had to be a production company to get on car television or car publishing and yeah. you had to be a very high level journalist to get into car publishing 30 or 40 years ago and of course it's democratised now so the great thing is if you're a content provider and here's a great example or a content creator yeah. there's no barrier to entry if you've got a telephone with a half decent camera on it and some way of recording you can make content now yeah, yeah. I well we're doing this with my laptop and two microphones and they're not like those big studio mics they're Rode Wireless I think they were 200 quid yeah and that's all you need and that's it that's, that's everything like I we were just chatting about this I um, I've got a little 360 camera and I've just got a drone and I've got a little mirrorless camera so I'm probably 1500 quid into stuff and I can do 
4K videos, I can do podcasts, I can do audio, I can do photo. Like, the range of stuff you can do now with almost no, like, outgoing. Obviously, 15 million quid is yeah. not nothing. It's not a small amount of money, but... No, but it's not a, like, 10 grand camera no. to be able to shoot 10, 4K like you used to be able to. My phone will do 4K 60 frames a second. But that's the crazy thing, because if you look at the TV show that we make, so I work with some very talented cameramen, ex-Top Gear cameramen in yeah. some cases, and they look at what you can produce now on an iPhone, and they say, well, what's the point of us almost <laughs> investing in... I mean, they have vanfuls of equipment, yeah. the value of which is probably quite a nice house in some cases. But actually, although you get a, a better depth of thing, on a broadcast camera and obviously it can cope very well with low light I mean we've shot at you know an hour past dusk basically yeah. and then when you see the final effect because it's had to it's looked like the rest of the day yeah yeah so that's the thing that those big cameras can do is they cope incredibly well with low light but the iPhone 13 and 14 to me they changed the game in terms of content creation because you oh, can yeah. make really amazing stuff and we are now doing with our little agency we're now doing stuff for manufacturers on phones wow that they are using for national campaigns it's insane isn't it like you can get like little handheld gimbals and now that will keep an iPhone really steady so you wouldn't know that it was done on an iPhone yeah. and there's like whole films that have been shot on iPhones and there's there's a company now that will, they build rigs for iPhones so it's like a full telescopic photo lens that mounts onto the front of your iPhone and a full rig that will go on a proper gimbal and it all runs through an iPhone's camera but like I say they shoot in 4K so we shoot our show in 4K but when it goes out at the moment it only goes out in 1080 right so you're overproducing yeah that's the thing so they're just kind of making it obviously to a higher ratio and to a higher quality for later because maybe if it's shown on repeat on some other platform 10 years time the world will be 4K that will be the industry standard it's mad like I don't really watch much telly like we'll do a bit of streaming or bit of youtube here and there and then every so often you like just turn on a telly at like the in-laws house or something like oh god it's so so great isn't it i'm not used to watching <laughs> it's so telly. true yeah but I, I find youtube now and i'm finding more and more obviously there are some great car programs on telly but i'm either watching sort of catch-up or stuff i really want to watch i'm watching the bernie eccleston lucky series at the moment which i don't know if you've watched that, it's on, that. it's on loads of platforms i've watched it on discovery plus obviously because i work for them so you get that for free right get that for free. they're not like no you still have to pay a tenner yeah <laughs> what <laughs> but that's amazing it's like Drive to Survive but using all the amazing old footage from like the 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s so it's a really good thing to watch I definitely recommend that that sounds awesome but I tend to find of an evening now if I'm watching anything it's watching YouTube yeah there's so much out there isn't there yeah and it's kind of like you can tailor your own channel so you can go right I just want to watch this stuff so that's all I'll see I, I don't have to get through the history of the Nazis to get to your show I can go straight to what I want to watch. Because yeah. like, Discovery has a very broad scope of what they do. You have a mix of shows, and it's not necessarily on demand, whereas online you go, right, that's what I want to watch. So and that's, that's, that's the interesting thing in broadcasting. So that's how I watch TV. I tend to watch TV what I want, when I want. Yeah. But what's really interesting and very humbling is the fact there's still a massive audience out there. I think it might be an older audience that wants to watch TV the way that we used to yeah. back in the day. So what we try to do is when a new show comes out on Terrestrial, so we've got a new series out at the moment, Spot the plug. Oh, that's fine. Cheeky plug there. Um, so they what's that called and where can we watch that's it? Called, thank you for asking, Lewis. That's called Savage Hunters Classic Cars and that comes out on Wednesdays at nine o'clock on Quest. That sounds like you've rec- recorded that several times <laughs> and you know exactly how to, like, intonate and everything else. It's almost like a the voiceover <laughs> yeah, yeah. before, yeah. God, what a skill set. I know, thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's coming out at the moment. And what's lovely is people seem to like to watch that 
as it goes out. Right. And there's almost like this thing on Twitter where we kind of sort of count everybody down to the fact the show's about to start. Yeah. And Drew and I try to, for each live first showing, sort of live tweet and say to anyone, if there's anything you see on screen that you'd like the answer to, or if you'd like to know a behind-the-scenes question or a little bit of extra information that maybe the programme didn't show, please ask us during the show and we'll try and answer live whilst you're watching it. So it's more interactive then? Yeah, and that's the one thing you can't get on catch-up because obviously we can't all watch at the same time on catch-up. We're thinking, we're trying to give people a reason to sit and watch the TV as the show goes out and we're hoping just that live interaction just gives them an extra layer you don't get on any other platform. It's a bit like how Formula One started introducing like driver of the race and you can vote for people and Oh, I think Formula E gave them like a little nitro boost or something that yeah. they called it where it's like the winner of this gets a little extra power and it's like well, what's the it takes the whole racing out it's of true, it's true it's true who's most popular they get a little extra speed well done you but I do think the audience interaction is the future I think if yeah. sort of linear terrestrial television wants to remain relevant to an audience I think it's got you've got to give them a reason to tune but, in at that time yeah you've got yeah. to say sit down at this point and we'll make it slightly better than any other time you can watch it I mean yeah. whether Drew and I make it slightly better that's debatable so we won't watch it at that point because we might have to talk to it. <laughs> yeah God, no. <laughs> but it's really good that people ask the most interesting and intelligent questions, like, you know, what happened with the engine and gearbox because I didn't see that done, or yeah. was there a problem when you fitted this? Or it's what? much nicer than the YouTube comments, isn't it? Yeah, to be fair, people are very lovely. But you yeah. tend to find on Twitter you exist in a bit of an echo chamber anyway because you tend to follow people who you like and people follow you who like you. You yeah. get the odd very strange person that doesn't like you. And they follow you just to harass you. Yeah. Endlessly. I'm quite fortunate that I don't have any of that currently, yeah. which would... I don't, I don't think you will either. What's interesting is because I'm sort of fairly self-effacing on social media anyway, I'm normally the first person to point full at myself. Mm. I have this thing uh, which is hashtag with all my fans and generally... Yeah, I, I've subscribed to that so many times. Every time I go to an event that I know you're going to be at, because I'll be there early if I've got a stand or something, so I'll get there when it's empty. I take a picture. And I'm always like, just chilling with Paul's fans. Well, that's it. <laughs> Every time. So if anyone's listening that doesn't really realise what that is, so there's always a thing that famous people do, which is where they go to an event where they're on stage or where they've obviously got their hordes of adoring fans. Yeah. There's this trope isn't there if you're a take celebrity a selfie in front of the crowd. yeah take a celebrity on the stage and behind them is obviously the lines and lines of adoring fans and obviously quite rightly so because they, they deserve those fans but what I like to do is if I go to a place that should be busy but isn't yeah. restaurant airport motorway services and for some bizarre reason the place is completely empty I always, do, I always do me a picture of me in this empty place which looks bizarre sort of 28 days later vibe yeah yeah and then here I Lockdown am there must have been a gold mine for that oh, was great. <laughs> I'm just in the centre of London with all there's nobody at Trafalgar <laughs> <laughs> but what's lovely, I, I mean, you've seen on Twitter, everybody's picked it up. It's become this thing where everybody now on Twitter, yeah. if they're somewhere where it should be busy but it's quiet, they say, nice to see the Paul Callan fan club or whatever it is. And it's and it's become this phenomenon. And I think because I have been the first person to poke fun at myself yeah. and make fun of myself, and also most of the stuff I put out on social... It gives licence for other people to be playful, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's it, it. If you're not too sensitive to it, then people go, oh, OK, Paul will take this as a joke because he's making the joke. And yeah. you have kind of control over the joke then rather yeah. than someone making a joke at your expense and then everyone goes oh that's a great joke and then you're like right I'm upset now but I can't control this because if I then get upset people go oh it's getting to him let's do it some more because yeah. it's fun and that's how bullying happens it's so true but I think with that I mean what I've done there is basically allow everybody to burst my bubble yeah. and be part of almost a fun community of, of what it is to sort of knock me down the peg yeah let's not let Paul get too big headed yeah. that's the, the whole joke is, that is the joke there's nobody here yay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's well I've done that since the very very beginning and obviously not that I am in any way famous now but obviously when you become a little bit more yeah. well known if you can still perpetuate a joke like that I think it just makes people realise look I'm the same guy nothing's changed yeah a lot more down to it well we're, we're sat in your office at your little uh, 
I say little quite sparingly. <laughs> There's what, 30 cars in here? It's about, in yeah, various 30 cars. Ramps and covers. We're in the car cave, the Paul Cowan car cave. Yeah, it's yeah. great. And I love that it's so varied as well. It's not like, oh, here's Paul's supercars that he's bought because now he's on TV. It's like, no, there's an Audi 80 that costs £600 or whatever, yeah. just tucked right in the middle. You're like, look at this and look at the door shut line of that. And it, it's that's the most fun part that I've found now that I've gone from like car enthusiasts to working in some capacity around the automotive world. And again, that's a reasonably easy barrier to like to entry because all I do is just draw T-shirts and go... They're very good T-shirts. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, but I, it's not like I'm like on the telly or someone that anyone might know for anything proper. It's just I had an idea and I started doing that idea and now I know people in the industry because everyone's so welcoming and so friendly. But you know a lot of people in the industry. That's what's really... I think that's uh, just because I'm very chatty. Yeah, that's true. But, but don't you find that? I think if you come out with a good idea and I think the, the important thing in, in our little world is the way that you come into it as well. I think if you just try and be embracing and open and, and try and be part of the community, I think everybody yeah. wants you to come into it. Well, that, I've, I've been very fortunate in that A, my idea is to try and help people. So I'm not doing anything... Like I'm not trying to be bigger than I am. I'm just going, look, wouldn't it be nice if we all talked a bit more? And why don't we use cars to do that? And my background is from within mental health. So I, I worked in the hospitals for about three years. So working in that environment takes away a lot of your fear of other people. So I'm not approaching someone that's really well known as a fan and being all excitable because I'm just like, that is a person. Let's talk to them like a person. And a lot of people are really receptive to just being treated like a normal human being, which you should do to anyone anyway, mm. especially if they're someone really well-known, because it's like, no, you're a person, let's let's give you that kind of respect. And that's been really well-received as well. So I, I'm quite fortunate in that I haven't really got that kind of fear because I've seen the worst of life, in, in a sense. So it's like, well why would I be scared of this person because all they're going to do is either reject me and say no or be a bit rude and in either case I'm better off not knowing them anyway that's true so you just go hi I'm going to talk to you like a person and if you're rude to me then I won't talk to you again because I don't need to like we'll crack on without you but haven't you also found this when you talk to famous people as normal people and don't have that kind of weird sort of power differential that often people expect you have to have Mm. they just talk normally back yeah they're just people Mm. and they're really friendly and often they really appreciate not having to work in this weird power dynamic because they just get to be oh I'm just myself now um, I was very fortunate that when I first started doing what I do the likes of Henry Catchpole Alex Goy saw it and kind of supported it when it was crap basically it wasn't very good I was up and coming I think is the term. yeah we'll yeah. go with that one yeah. um, so it gave me this nice warm introduction to the, the automotive like professional world so you mentioned it, two legends then also two very in- inclusive I've, I've had the joy of working with Alex on a few things we've done a few Lexus launches together yeah he's a great guy and also Henry Catchpole I think he's to me one of the most credible and wonderful YouTubers yeah yeah he's just joined us at Haggerty actually I'm an ambassador for Haggerty I know and I, he's just joined the roster and I think he's probably the best guy we could have signed if you look at what he does and how he does it oh he's so good he's in, and I mean this is the greatest compliment to him he's the most non-YouTuber YouTuber yeah He's just Henry. He's just basically yeah. it's his writing brought to life. Obviously, he's a bit of a peddler as well, which always helped. Yeah, and he's he's one of those where he's like, I didn't really think I'd be doing stuff in front of camera, but I kind of kind of had to just have a go, and mm. it's just turned into this thing. He's not like he was uh, his ego didn't drive him into that. He's like, 
I just had a go and people yeah. seem to like it. So I carried that's on having the best presenting, I think. When you've got someone that's just very good at what they do yeah. and he's a fabulous driver and a brilliant writer and then you just, as I say, put that person on screen. Yeah. And like you say, that's the motivation because that's just the medium that they suddenly have to work in. Because I always think Drew, Drew, who I make the Savage Hunter show with. Yeah, you always joke about like things being weighed down by his wallet. That's my favourite yeah. joke <laughs> every time. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Every time I see you making a joke at him, I've never met him. I've Genuinely, I've never met him, so I have no connection to the guy. But all I see is you just poking fun at him. I'm like, I feel like that's a very fun relationship. It's done with much love, though, I have to say. But he's similar. So he basically came into television with no ego because he was just being recorded whilst he was doing his day job, which was buying generally rubbish chairs and fairly disappointing paintings. But he can make quite a good living doing that, it seems. Right, it seems like there's money to be had in just having some knowledge within any sort of speciality, Mm. being able to utilise that knowledge to find something that someone else wouldn't have seen and then provide that to someone that might know what they're looking for just being that provider of that service seems to be a really nice sweet spot to be in definitely but i love watching him on tv and what was interesting so we were mates for about four years before we started making telly together and but i used to enjoy watching him even before i even knew him yeah just because he's authentic and i think that's the most important thing that anyone who does any kind of media if you're your youtuber or podcaster or whatever it is i think just to be authentic and to be you and to be as close to you how you are on screen as you are off screen or on record and off record yeah because to me there's a few people and i won't mention any names because it's not fair but there's a few people where their on-screen persona and their real life persona are so far apart yeah yeah and i just think that's and also you know mental health talking about looking after yourself that's got to be quite hard to maintain if you're so far apart with your character on and off screen that's got to be quite difficult to maintain yeah and there's probably two sides that it's probably really hard to keep that up but it's also probably helps switch off Mm. because obviously you go right i'm done that bit now I can be me again so I've not got that blurred line and it probably helps with the switching out of that mode yeah. then at the same time yeah you've got to keep up that and that takes a lot of energy and it's it's a, a bit of a double edged sword really like because yeah, all right. presenters have a presenter mode because we all have it you know because sometimes you come when you're a bit tired you have to be a bit more of yourself yeah. you have to be a bit louder and a bit more vocal and a bit more expressive and everything's done at 110% because most people who've never been either in front of a camera or recorded or anything you don't realise how much of a tax recording takes off of what you're saying so like even when we're doing this we're probably speaking a little bit louder than we would normally just so that it the expressions come through we should talk about our amazing recording setup we've got here actually we have people it's can't actually see this. amazing and i should probably take a photo of this um because it is brilliant actually my <laughs> camera's in my bag over there i'm just going to grab so i'm going to describe it for the ladies and gentlemen yeah, you describe it and i'll grab my camera so if you've ever recorded on a tabletop before you might know you get an acoustic bounce so that's when you're speaking across a table basically what happens is the sound waves come back up and you get a tiny echo and it just sounds like a little bit like you're in a toilet and nobody wants that in a podcast so what we've done is i found in my garage some amazing colour change very 90s looking ski suits which I inherited when I bought the garage and they are amazing I might put them on eBay because they're imagine if TVR had made a ski suit in the 1990s what would it look like (laughs) do you think that's a fair description it's that purple to blue like iridescent yeah sort of colour change and depending on the angle of the fabric but what we're using we're putting these on the tabletop and that's taken all the acoustic bounce so if you're sitting in your car listening to this going wow what is this so much crisper than all the other crappy mates yeah what is this anarchy awesomeness they've created here on this record and it's basically 90 ski suits that's it I'm, I might just have to borrow them to take with me on every podcast I've just brought <laughs> I my sound deadening equipment and just chuck it on the table in fact what we'll do we'll do a photo of Lewis in one of the 90 ski suits because oh, I think God. it's probably about the exact right size that's it, it, it may well be I mean I'm not the I'm like the most average man but have you I'm seen about... them? we've also got the goggles to match over there can you see oh you have oh amazing and a magneto magazine as well oh yeah 
Oh, Love a bit of David Lillywhite. He is an amazing guy. I used to look after David Lillywhite Subaru. That's my claim to fame. Did you? Yeah. Your claim to fame is not that you're on the telly. It's I looked after David Lillywhite Subaru. <laughs> yeah. I think that's which is a very impressive. niche reference <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> when we had our Subaru garage in the early noughties, we used to service the Subaru for him. Yeah. Fun. What is a thoroughly nice man way? he is. He's um, not too far away. He's only about mm. an hour or so away. But yeah, he's always had Subarus. He's always been into his skibers. I wish I'd have mentioned that I have a 86 when I met him then, because he might have been way more chatty. Because we had a good chat. We were down at the... Um, Technically yours is a Toyota. It is. But Even though it's made in the Subaru, Subaru factory. engine as well. Yeah, it's made in the Subaru factory. Which is broke. How rude. <laughs> That's not why I I'd like to say I've got the first... You've got a BRZ as well, I've got the first BRZ. Oh, right, OK. The very first it's one. It's still going. With its original engine. Can't it's been wait. to Nürburgring four times. It's running 30 horsepower more than it had a standard. Have you had to do anything with the oil pump? No. Really? Because that it. was the cause of my downfall. Was it really? Was the oil starvation at the bottom end. So I, beautifully. I was behind a motorbike in the Peak District and then all of a sudden it was making some very knocking sounds. Yeah. So I got, oh, I was on my way to work and I had to stop. Unfortunately, my friend lived nearby and her family were having a barbecue. So I like just coasted it into their driveway and just like... How handy was that? crashed their barbecue, <laughs> yeah. And um, I had to sit and wait for the AA to recover me. So what happened? The, the AA came and... The, the guy was like, oh, it's got a, an LSD on the back and it's rear-wheel drive, so I can't put you on a on the little trolley jack thing. Yeah, spec lift, yeah. So I'll just have to tow you. So I had to get towed home. Fortunately, it wasn't too far, but it was like a Friday evening oh, no. in the summer. Yeah. So all the pubs were full and all the people were sat outside and this was in like the Derbyshire Dale. It was like, so everybody was outside and there's me and he's like, yeah, the tow speed on this is 20 miles an hour because of your car. So I very slowly got paraded through Derbyshire to get home. Did you have all the stickers on the side no, of this before all of that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I just, the most uncomfortable drive back um, and then a friend of mine has a trailer so we took it over to Toyota to get sorted. Which Did is they a, fix it for you? Eventually. Um, I... It it falls under that case of like franchises and dealers are not Toyota. Toyota and the franchises work very separately to each other. And this was back before I knew anyone or knew who to talk to or what to ask or anything like that. So the car came home. I got in touch with who were supposed to be like the GT86 gurus nearest to where I was and said, this has happened. It's making all these noises. What do I do? And he said, oh, send us your your service book, like send us a PDF of your service book and tell us what it's doing, this, that, and the other. So I did that, and they said, should be fine, get it to us, should be under the warranty. Took it to them, they took the engine apart, diagnosed it was um, bottom-end failure, needed a new short block, new oil pump, um, and then said, oh, can you send us the invoices for your service? sent them the invoices and they then turned around and went oh you put 530 in instead of 040 or 020 whichever it is um, it's not covered and I went but the service book doesn't say that it has to be that oil it specifically says if you drive it a bit more aggressively put thicker oil in yeah higher weight yeah so I was like I did exactly what the service book says oh no no you're not covered and then it was a, or you can have it back as it is in pieces so that you can take it somewhere Thanks. else and then they can do what they need to do or it'll be six grand I was like, right, well, I guess I'll be coming and picking it up then. Picked it up, and it was in pieces. Like Everything was on the floor, nothing was in boxes, nothing was labelled, so I couldn't even figure out what was, what went where and this, that, and the other. So 
six months of back and forth with the franchise company all the way up to their European sales director and credit due to my dad as much as he's a bit of a pain he called them every day yeah got to European sales director for the whole group and hassled him that much that the guy was like just fix this car to get this guy to leave me alone so they fixed it there's a lesson there for everyone I think yeah Yeah. be really annoying and people will uh eventually well you'd hate wouldn't you in most cases I mean I've run a dealership and I've run a specialist and I, I always think if what you're achieving by saying no is actually upsetting that customer that you'll never see again it's a very short term win yeah so we used to have when we used to sell a lot of cars because I never really found a warranty company that I thought would do because you always find those grey areas don't you you always find so yeah that's that's definitely covered that's definitely not covered mm. you know you, you've thrashed it for 10 track days and your engine's gone pop I can't cover that yeah. but you know the person that's done what you've done you've enjoyed it you've driven a sports car in a sporty way yeah yeah and it's still and you've serviced it correctly and then you always find warranty companies wanting to wiggle out of tiny technicalities and all you do then is just upset a customer and you lose them forever yeah. right actually if you just said in some cases even to go halves each or yeah, yeah. whatever it is actually there's always to me there's a happy point in the middle where people feel they've been looked after because when you sell cars or look after cars it's all about delighting the customer yeah it really is and it's a bit of a and no one does it that's the thing everybody wants to come into a fight and as soon as you get into a fight Everything. nothing good will happen yeah and credit to Toyota themselves they've now brought out the flex warranty so you get up to 10 years mm. up to 100,000 miles now Mine is now at 103. Yeah. I had it serviced at 99,850. <laughs> so you get another, so another, another year. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's up to 100. Yeah. But you get 10 if you have it serviced before 400. That's genius. So I got it serviced. Like, it didn't need the service. It, I'd had it serviced like 4,000 miles before. I was like, you know what? For 300 quid, oh, yeah. I'd, I'll happily take another 10,000 miles. But that's a lot of miles on one of those, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's on 103 now. What and mods have you done and what mods are you going to do? Because obviously I love that car. I think it's such a good chassis. It's... Um, tune developments exhaust catback kit yeah uh, tine teen coilovers with the damper adjustments yeah do you ever adjust them though a friend of mine went turn it all the way to stiff and then wind it back 10 clicks and you'll be fine so that's all I did yeah and I've just left it alone Actually, you want to go from soft up, not from hard back, generally. It, it, one of those car, two always go from soft up. Because you want to run a car as soft as you can. Right. That's a bit of a misconception. So, so people, it's a bit more comfortable. And yeah, and also on a country road, if you think of the undulations on a country I road. I just showed you the video of the bottom of that hitting the bottom yeah. of the road, yeah. So actually, compliance is your friend. Compliance is speed on most country lanes. And actually, the softer a car can be on a B-Rose, the faster you will go. One of the fastest cars I've got for covering B-Rose is my base model Volvo S90 on 17-inch wheels and massive, almost, yeah. balloon tyres. Because the car is so compliant, you can hit four or five bumps in a row, really horrendous bumps, which would normally give you like a sort of harmonic disturbance that would fire the car off. Yeah. And that just rides it, rides it like a WRC car. It's crazy. Well, that's it. I'm going out to the car park afterwards and then just soften it, it off. Yeah. yeah, I'll just do it with you. Yeah, you go start as soft as you can and then come up because the softer it can be so without bottom Adjusting from that point, then how do you know when you've hit the right point? Let's just keep going around. Get a route that you love. Yeah. And then you can only reference by. So you start, start on full soft. Your route, right? Okay, that was too soft. I was bottoming out there, or I didn't have enough turning. And then you've got to also factor in geometry. So, do dampers first, yeah, go around and just keep going and going and going. So, if you're doing any kind of track testing or damper setup, the key is repeatability basically, yeah. So, you need to have same conditions, same day, same grip, same everything, and then just keep doing it until you find a setup that suits you. And two drivers could have two completely different setups, yeah, yeah. So, the geometry was suggested by a friend. 
and he's he used to be like a semi-pro go-karter and then he's done a lot of track stuff and he suggested that to several friends and they've all gone this is the right amount of understeer and turning and stuff like that so I just went to a place with a laser yeah. thing I went this is what I want and they, they were like well we can't do that I was like it's like negative two and a half camera on the front it's not much and like one at the back it's hardly anything so I know this is what I went oh we can't do that I was like well QuickFit did it for my mate because here is the screenshot he sent me of his QuickFit yeah. readout of what he wanted no 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 I had to like argue with them and it turned out they were like oh that'll be 300 quid please I was like what <laughs> you've turned four bolts oh yeah but we have to pay for the equipment I was like oh god I wish I'd gone to QuickFit <laughs> Quickly, I've actually can do some quite decent stuff. Yeah, which I didn't realise. But I would, if I, with one of those, though, even though it's obviously a Toyota, I would take it to a Subaru specialist because I'm gonna all go the subframes are obviously all Subaru. So it's, yeah. to, it's a Toyota badge, the jointly developed inlet, but actually the engine is a Subaru engine. Yeah. So, and the drivetrain Subaru and all the subframes are Subaru. So yeah, Subaru. Well, there's Rogue Motorsports not far from us because they're kind of Coventry, Warwickshire-ish way and we're Northamptonshire. Yeah, but so any good chassis guy should be able to set it up. There's a place in... Oh, where is it? Hinkley called like this 360 or zero gravity or something like that. And they're supposed to be like the absolute best at setups. Yeah. So like, you go in and go, I want to be able to go down B roads really quick. And they go, Right, seen an hour. And then your car is set up for B roads really quickly. But geometry is one of the best monies you can spend on your car. Because people always say to me, What mod should I get for my car? Two best mods. Well, first of all, tyres. Yeah. Tyres are everything. Brakes are secondary. Third is geometry. And ideally, you do all of that at the same time. Yeah. And then the fourth is you. Yeah. Learn how to they're, drive. They're the four best mods. If, you, if you've only got a limited budget, just do those four things. That's what I've been told. So, like, when... So, I'm on the 86 owners groups on Facebook and this, that, and the other. Every time someone buys a new one, oh, what should I do to it? And all of the comments are tyres and training. Learn how to drive it mm. and then tinker with it. Because then you know what you're getting when you change something. Because if you go, right, I've spent 10 grand on suspension and wheels and tyres and brakes and exhaust and supercharged and all the... You go, I, I don't like this. It's like, well, no, because you don't know where you started and yeah. what you've progressed to. Whereas mine, it's not... I need to get it remapped. That's the, the mod that I need to get done once the warranty's run out. I'll get that linear torque curve sorted. Cause it makes a huge difference, because the mad thing about those, they were advertised as 200 PS, yeah. and that the Subaru and the Toyota both were. And what's interesting, when you actually dynoed them, they all made about 175, 176 brake horsepower right. in real life. Yeah. And also, they, they're quite top-ended, a lot of the stuff... Well, nothing happens until after four and a half. Yeah, so i say it's very, very high revving. But what you can do is really bring the torque curve down. That's what I've done on mine. So mine's 30 horsepower more, so it's about 208 real horsepower, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you lower the torque curve and bring it a couple of... Of a thousand RPM lower down. Yeah, the difference it makes to how the car drives. Well, I need to go where you went then. I just need to go and give well, me was, what Paul. That, that was Ecutech actually. Ecutech do a really good solution for that car. Right. And then I think Paul Blamere mapped. Yeah, Paul Blamere did map it. And bless him, I think he did fifty pulls. And, and every time he pulled it, he was getting between a quarter and half a horsepower. <laughs> he just kept going. He just kept going. It was just like the patience of a saint. He just kept tapping and tapping and tapping. God. And he made this beautiful torque curve. And, it, and it's probably now of all the cars I'm lucky enough to own, that's the car I would take on any track day because it's you can right. drive it all day. It's got that sweet spot. It's really quick. We did a charity karting day for the Motormouth podcast. I saw that they asked if I wanted to go, and I was like, I'm really sorry, I don't have any money. <laughs> Neither do any. Of my friends. Oh, bless. So uh, one day, one, one well, I was very kindly invited as a guest, and um, 
before the go-karting started at Wilton Mill, they had a few cars That's going just around. down the road from my house. Such a cool track. So good. Such a good track. And it's quite a big track for go-kart track. So they invited a few cars out, including a McLaren a GT40 replica and a little BRZ on Wilton. And that was the fastest car around. Faster than a McLaren. It's quite tight, isn't it? There's yeah. A lot of really... That hairpin at the top end. So I, I got invited with a few people who do, like, youtube stuff. And they were like, we just want to get a load of people out on the track. We'll do some video. We'll all strap cameras on and this, that, and the other. That hairpin, so the person in front of me went, so then I kind of slid into them, not that aggressively. And then the guy that was behind me is, like, a bit overweight. He came up full chat. There's nothing wrong with that, I just like to say. No, no, just <laughs> describing the uh, the amount of force yeah. that was present. Well made, as we say around here. He was well made. Flying into it. I had yeah. a, the biggest bruise on my leg. Literally, like, my whole thigh was purple. <laughs> like, this really hurts. Really Carting hurt. injuries are the best injuries. I don't know if you've ever driven it. There used to be, it might still be there, at Bruntingthorpe, which used to be somewhere we spent a lot of time so the old Bruntingthorpe airfield was right. back in the day early noughties into kind of the teens was the magazine photo shoot place of choice because it was cheap basically yeah. if you wanted to drive at full speed you could hire Bruntingthorpe as part of a session for like 100 quid or 150 quid not too bad then do all your mag shoots go a bit mad but in the middle of Bruntingthorpe is a go-kart track right but it's bizarre because it, just imagine a go-kart track in the middle of a massive piece of grass but with no barriers at all so you just go off yeah, so if you go off, but it, there's so much grass around you. If you go off, you just basically the grass slows you down eventually. Yeah, but you're S- half a mile away. Yeah, yeah, several years later. But then what's brilliant, imagine like a... So we were driving around trying to drive, as you always do in a go-kart track, within the, the tarmac. Yeah. And then some bright spark realised, actually, because there are no barriers anywhere of any kind whatsoever, you can just cut the corner. <laughs> so of course you just cut across the corner, come up in front of everybody, and then but everybody started doing it, and it just led to the point where it was like a real-life Mario Kart. <laughs> And then in the end, he just got completely out of hand and then somebody God. ended up getting airlifted. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, well, like, big crash happened. Big crash, yeah. Stub axle sheared and the wheel came off and smacked him on the head. It wasn't even the crash, it was a wheel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. That's insane. So, yeah, that's, that's why I think they put crash barriers up. Well, we, we're going to Finland soon and we were looking at things to do. And you can go ice go karting oh, over there. But that's so much fun. We were going to book, and there's no space. I was so gutted because it looks like it'd be absolutely hilarious. Because you've got little studded tyres. Yeah. So you can properly go for it. It's not like normal go karts, but on snow where you just sit stationary, like, yeah, well, I'm not going anywhere. They're proper like designed for it. Oh, I'm so annoyed that we can't can't go because it looks so like a mini version of the GP ice race, basically, or Tuttle's ice driving experience. That looks so much fun, doesn't it? Oh, I'd love to do that. I I had uh, had Richard on the podcast recently. And he was like, oh, getting ready for the ice race. I was like, oh, I'm so jealous. He's like, yeah, we should come. I was like, how much is it? It's like, yeah, you know, it's only like three, four grand. I was like, yeah, okay. Just like a third of the value of my car. (laughs) I was watching, what was it the other day? I was watching, I think, 1990 RAC rally coverage. And I'm pretty sure it was Richard in that, in a Beetle. Do you remember he did like a Harlequin Beetle? So his family started with Beetles. Yeah. That's where they, and then obviously progressed into Porsche like the Beetle did. Which I, like, when we, I had him on and we were chatting about it, he's like, yeah, we started at Beatles and then we, we evolved into Porsche. It's like, that makes, that's quite a nice like, metaphor. And he's like, I've never even thought of that. That's well, what's interesting, though, so I grew up, so I was always into air-cooled Volkswagens and, and I still am. Yeah. And, and Drew's the same thing. If Drew grew up, he had loads and loads of air-cooled Volkswagens. He's got that lovely black one, hasn't he? Oh, he's got so much stuff, honestly. Mm. So much cool stuff. And I think nearly everyone that had an air-cooled Volkswagen either wanted a 930 Porsche or later now has a water-cooled Porsche. And it's amazing the amount of people that have a Porsche 911 now had an air-cooled Volkswagen when they were kids. Ah, I see. Well, I had a Mini when I first started to drive, so what would be the current... Well, I suppose you could have a new Mini, couldn't you? But I think after the Frank Stephenson shape, I think the R53, to me, that's the last cool-looking Mini. They just got too big in, yeah. and, 
and too butch now. And the new one's got plastic fins and square bits all over it, which is it's quite cool because not many new companies are doing that kind of level of creativity. Yeah, and, and nothing drives like a Mini, does it? Even the new ones. But to me, those early Coopers, those kind of early noughties Coopers, I think they're absolutely fabulous. You sort one of those out on yeah, track, yeah. and that, that's one of the best track cars. A friend of mine's building an R53 um, track car. Like, and he's managed to... He was at... I can't remember which company it is. And it's probably better that I don't know, because then they'll be like, don't say that. <laughs> they basically just had a load of Mini parts in their bin, because they were like, right, we can't use these anymore. Yeah. We've got to move on to a different car. So we just took it all away. And one of them had the bright sparks to go, oh, what if we just, this all just disappeared? So we got all this proper, like, BTCC stuff really? for free. Because he was like, they were throwing it away. So he's got all BTCC mini bits for his R53, just because they were like, oh, we're going to move on to the newer cars, so we don't need any of this stuff. He's like, it's going to be insane. It will be amazing. Yeah, he's just building it on his driveway. When will that be ready? I want to see that. I don't know, but soon-ish, and he's putting a passenger seat in it. I want to know when you're doing the Tacona track day, when's that happening? I don't know, because that takes money, and I need more of it. To, to like, It's one of those, I'd like to start with a skid pan. I'd yeah. like to go, right, let's do a skid pan day, it's 30 quid a person, whatever. That's a really good idea. It's a nice, fun way to... Uh, Mission Motorsport have already done it, so I'm basically borrowing the idea. I'm not that clever. Um, but I think that's a nice, fun entry-level way to go, right, we'll do a thing It's a bit more fun than just a car meet. And also that's a great skill to learn as well, because people don't really spend much time sideways. going out of control, yeah. unless you're drifting. And I'd like to be able to hold a car sideways at more than four miles an hour because anyone can pull out of a junction and kick the back end out on yeah. a rear-wheel drive car without a problem. But it's one of those where you go into a corner a little bit quick and the back goes and then you just shit yourself. Being able to control that a bit more is probably a really vital skill. But it goes back to what we are saying about the best money you'll ever spend is on you as a driver because not only are you making yourself faster and safer but every car you ever sit in for the rest of your life, yeah. that's a modification that transfers, isn't it? If you put ECU and exhaust and you make your current car 30 horsepower faster or more powerful um, that's it it's generally that car that goes faster doesn't it but yeah, if you spend the same £3,000 on yourself every car will go faster and obviously a faster driver will make every car faster oh, I, uh, when I first got the 86 a month after I got it it was Fast Car Festival at Donington and Piston Heads had like a, a paddock there and there was like 40 cars supposed to come and only 9 of us turned up so they were like well we've got three track sessions for the group there's only nine of you so there's only nine of you that could potentially go out on track and I just got the car and I'd never had a sports car before and I, it was the most expensive thing I'd ever bought and it's only the, and all the guys went you have to do it you have to it's free yeah. there's only nine of us you're never going to get Donington that quiet no, without spending a lot of money. it's such a good track, isn't money. it? I was like, oh, yeah, but I've just got the car. like, you're not going to get this opportunity twice. Um, I was like, but I've never been on a racetrack. I've never been on a track. And one of the guys had an aerial atom. He went, right, park yours in the pits, jump in my passenger seat. I'll show you what it's like to be on a track for half the session. Then you jump in your car, wait for me to go, and then you'll have a big enough gap that you've effectively got it to yourself. Yeah. My first experience with Donington or any racetrack was empty, which is like... What a track to start with, Oh, though. amazing bit of track. 
But the Sunday was. How did you feel the first time you went down Crane, so down the big hill and to the left, down to the old hairpin? How did that feel? Because that's quite daunting the first time you do it. It's very daunting in an aerial atom as well. I'd imagine. In the passenger seat. Having never been in in one before either. I was like, ah, the whole way down. So I don't really remember that experience because it was just like, oh my God, the whole time. I bet that felt so fast, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because you're on the floor and you've got just a helmet. And I grew up with dirt bikes and quad bikes. So I'd been in a scenario where it's air rushing around like a race helmet, but never in a car. It was always something I was holding on to. So it was terrifying. Um, but the next day was a Sunday service. So oh, yeah, okay. there was loads of people. But I'd had a day's prep, basically. I was overtaking everyone. Oh, yeah. I was just TVRs, Audi RS3s. And then Danny DC2 flew past me in a very old Honda Civic that he just stripped everything out of, put some good suspension on it and can drive. Yeah. Oh my god! I was like, "How is he taking this corner that quickly in this really ratty old Civic?" And he just blitz everyone, and it's as you say, because he can drive. Yeah, she's driving. But that really brought it home to me. Funny enough, at Donington, so I've lived around here pretty much my entire life, yeah. and obviously Donington is my local circuit. I've raced there loads of times. I've run there a few times, and you think, you know what? I know Donington. I know it. So I was there with Darren Langeveld, who's a good mate of mine. He's an instructor. He runs Destination Nurburgring. Right, he might be RZ funny enough as well. He said, do you want me to sit with you and I'll give you some instruction? I'm thinking, I'll say yes to be polite because he's a friend yeah, yeah. and he's a very good instructor and a very nice man. I thought, but I, I know this track. I know all the corners. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I thought, yeah. I'll, just, I'll go because he'll be impressed with my amazing driving, won't he? Yeah. Nice so I went, around, went around the track, drove around, Dan was looking, so it doesn't say anything. Just We do a couple of laps, I'm thinking, he will have just been amazed by that driving because it was faultless. This is the best driver I've ever seen. Why are you not in Formula yeah, 1? Yeah, so anyway, I stopped and went, oh, that's pretty good, mate, pretty good, quite tidy, guys. But I think, yeah, there's a few places I think we can pick up. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so then he went round and literally he's going, you know, just coming on the power like half a second too early here, you're just, you're breaking too deep. A classic example is actually Craner, anyone that's driven uh, Donington in a reasonably quick car and as you go through Craner, everyone likes to boast that they've taken it flat. Mm. And he's like, and which we were. And then I thought I was being absolutely manfully and heroic. He said, actually, if you just fractionally, not lift, but just, just come out the throttle just to touch, just like literally almost... An, in, just enough to shift the, the weight. It just puts the weight onto the nose. It tucks as you go through Craner. Just, but you get another three feet over to the left. So when you're doing old mm-hmm. hairpins, so you're losing, I don't know, a, a tenth here or a twentieth here. But you're gaining... But you're gaining maybe three tenths coming through old hairpin. So it's just little things like that. And you've got two seconds out of me in a 200-horsepower car. <laughs> yeah, OK. And that's, that's now... someone that can drive. Yeah. yeah, so they think... So now, wherever I am, if there's an instructor there, even if I think I know the circuit backwards, even if I think I am the man... Yeah. Just, there's always someone that knows more than you do. Well, always. I did. Um, I went over to Anglesey a couple of years ago, before pre-COVID. Like one of those lads trips, group of mates, all in different. We had from a, a turbocharged Mark One MX5 up to an R8 V10 manual, and everything in between. Uh, so we all went to Anglesey, and everyone's like, "Oh, we've got." It's a great track, though, isn't it? It's brilliant. And they were like, what, what should we do? I was like, oh, I'm getting tuition because I've never been here and I've never raced it on a simulator or a game or anything like that. So I, just to know what I'm doing, I'm going to jump in with the guy. I learned so much in that half hour. Mm. Just in like, oh yeah, if you break here and let the weight shift here and then you turn in like... And it makes such a difference having never had anybody go, no, this is what you should do to go in, right, if you do this, this, but then going, this is why and this is what happens. Yeah. It just... It makes everything click so much. It does. I think that's the biggest thing that people need to learn is weight. Where weight is on the car? Yeah. On which tire is the weight? How's it acting? And then what are you asking that tire to do whilst the weight is on it? Yeah. And if you don't know the answers to those questions, get some tuition because yeah. it will make <laughs> a huge a difference. difference to how much control you have on the car. That's insane. But we we've kind of gone on quite a tangent into car dynamics. Yeah. Which is it's very relevant to the the automotive stuff that we do, but it's not really a 
Paul Cowland story, is it? Well, no, just well, to hear some advice on how to drive. Oh, yeah, get an instructor. Like yeah. the hashtag, it's okay to talk, you know, it's okay to ask for tuition. I yeah, think that, that would help. be the other hashtag. <laughs> just get help will work yeah. on both. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you're looking for help about your mental health or you're looking to drive faster, get help. But that's the same thing. But I think in both cases, they come out of, from the same psyche, which is I feel embarrassed to ask. Yeah. It's all, it's, ego is the biggest kind of restricting factor on both of those. Because you think, oh, I can drive quickly, so why would I ask for help? Yeah. Or you think, yeah, I know what I'm about. So you don't ask for help. And then you get in a situation where you don't know what you're doing, or you feel like absolute crap. And then you crash. And then you're too scared to ask for help. Yeah. Because you've gone too far. Um, so that very nicely brings us back round to, to topic, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So how did you what a segue. Up? Yeah, perfect. So you, you started off in car sales. Yeah. How has that then evolved into the stuff that you do now? By complete accident. So went through car sales and what's great about car sales is you learn so much about people mm. and the way that people act and the good sides and the bad sides of people and also how to look after people how to and I always think same thing how to delight the customer so when I was a salesman then a sales manager then a dealer principal I think everyone who's listening has had an experience or knows someone that's had an experience going into a car show and being treated absolutely terribly yeah or having a really bad day and when you think in your situation with your warranty claim Everything about a car, to me, should be a delight because the cars, to me, are the fun thing that holds my life together. Yeah. So I want everybody with their car life to have the same amount of fun. So if you're buying a car, it should be a delightful thing. It should be a great day out. Now I see my kids, I've got two daughters. Their fun day, their most wonderful day they can have is to go clothes shopping. Yeah. They get real delight from it. It's the thing that really excites them. Car shopping should feel like that. Car shopping should feel, I'm going car shopping today. It's going to be amazing. Everyone I talk to is going to be lovely and friendly and helpful. The yeah, test well, you're making going to be... a huge commitment as well. Exactly. Right? And that's the thing. You know, they get excitement out of a £10 Primark top and they have a really nice time talking to the shop assistant. Why is it not like that in car sales? Why are people not having that same experience as these two teenage kids are having when they go clothes shopping? Yeah. Because it's mad, isn't it? So what we always try to do in my car sales days was give people that experience, give people that day out. And what was mad is I used to sell a lot of cars, an awful lot of cars. I won a few awards and got taken over to Saab in Sweden. And I got sat down by the board and asked, why are you selling so many cars? How have you done it? What's the secret sauce behind all these car sales? And she said, look, I ring people back. I'm there when I say I'll be there. I try and give them a nice day out, make them a cup of tea. I'm polite. I do a fair deal. Yeah. I don't try and turn them over. I try and ask to meet all their friends and ask for their business too. And I says, it's just really, really simple. It's just good old-fashioned customer service and just trying to be a nice guy yeah because everybody assumes a car dealer now is going to try and yeah. do them and like cut them in some way or make a margin off them and bit of wheelie dealing and all that kind of- and that's the thing and you only do it once don't you and i always say this to everybody that's ever worked with me or for me is you only do it once if you think you're being really clever by tucking someone up into the wrong car or turning them over for a massive profit which they'll later find out that you've done or any derivation of that anything where you think i've turned you over i've done a deal yeah you're a sucker i'm a genius that doesn't last because actually all that happens then is you make one amount of money once you never see them again you never get the service business they tell everyone you're an idiot and they hate you Yeah. and then all of their friends whereas the converse of that is they love you so much they bring people to you Yeah. and that's how it always used to get all the business so like a week after everybody took their card ring him up and say is everything okay nine times out of ten it was perfect the tenth time it would be a tiny little niggle often because they didn't know or they hadn't read the book or they hadn't remembered what I told them in the handover yeah but just something that was spoiling their enjoyment of the car I can't put the hood down I don't know how to do it 
let me come and show you. So you just drive out because you, you know you're only within a city radius. It's, yeah, yeah. And you just show them, and then they'd know forever. They'd be really happy. But sometimes it's tiny things that can affect people from enjoying something. And it's just finding the time to yeah. learn what that is. I've got a, an ongoing joke with Stephen Eagle Toyota. Yeah. That they won't let me have a go in a Supra. I've seen it on Twitter, yeah. Yeah. And it's this ongoing. And I'm, I'm not desperate to have a go in a Toyota. I, I'll have a go. If I want to go, I'll be able to have a go in a Supra. But it's got to the point now where this joke is more fun yeah. than the go in the car. And I hope they don't hear this because they'll go, well, well you never have any go then, are <laughs> But again, it's not silly that you've arrived at that point. Yeah. And it was one of those where it was like, it's mutually beneficial for us both because of the stuff that I have the capacity to do. Yeah. Most users of your cars won't be able to give you that level of user-generated content, which in today's world is a really valuable thing. Huge. And I was like, look, I'll take it to Bista because I've got to go there anyway. I'll put my 360 camera on it. I'll do a video. I'll do some written bits. I'll take some really nice photos of it. And you've got that to share on your social media. And we've got a really great story of how this car that Toyota featured on their website came into you and you looked after me and gave me a, a bit of fun for an afternoon. And I got to do all this. Here's your Yaris, Mr. Warren. Three times I've had a Yaris and once I've had a... No, three times I've had an Igo yeah. and once I've had a Yaris. All mighty fine cars, but They're not, great quite, cars, not quite a Supra. Not a Supra. Yeah. And I said, look, it's an, I'm here because of something inconvenient. Yeah. Like a drive shaft needed replacing and I've been back twice and the part just wasn't there but again that's silly isn't it because what we always used to do so I used to have a very good relationship with the service department when I was a salesman Yeah, and you'd look at whoever's coming in for service particularly if they've had the car two or three years or the car's getting to like a birthday like 100,000 miles Yeah, and you'd always think like, what's the next car up or what's the logical successor to what it is that you're in Yeah, and that's a real own goal for any garage listening if you are not putting your service customers into a car that's a potential upsell you're missing a massive trick probably 50% the cars I sold were at the point of the service. Yeah, that someone would come in and you know, hey, have, it, have this for the yeah. And I just say, look, yeah. I hope you don't mind, but I've just upgraded your service car to the whatever, the whatever generally being the new version of what they had when they came in, or the slightly better version. And people love it. Yeah, if it's a better car, they will buy it. They'll sell it to themselves. Exactly, because people inherently want to buy something new. Yeah, so they they will they'll talk themselves into that scenario. Rather than you having to get like feature dump and all the the sales jargon that comes along with it, you go just give them an opportunity to. When I worked in sales, the best thing I could do was shut up. Yeah. Tell someone something and then shut up and leave them to think about it. That's what it says, isn't it? Two ears, one mouth. Yeah. Use them in that proportion. That's what every good salesman should do. A couple of intelligent questions, qualifying questions, and then let the customer describe what they need, and then they'll tell you what they need, and then just give them that. Don't try and sell them the thing that you've got that's not right for them. Exactly. Give them the thing that they ask for. Fill the gap to the problem they have in their life. And you, like, I worked in two different types. So one was like corporate accounts for UPS, and the other was like, Installing BT Wi-Fi for people and upselling them on the right stuff and this and the other. And I was constantly battling with my manager because I didn't start in that job for sales. I started as a service. It was a service job. It was while Tacona was growing. This will pay the bills, and I get to do something that helps people. It was setting up Wi-Fi, setting up phones, sorting problems out for people, and then they started introducing the sales. So I was always of the mindset of all I need to do is hit that target, and then do nothing more. And I'm safe. Like, there are so many people not hitting target. If all I do is hit my target, they'll just leave me alone. My manager was constantly at me. Why aren't you, like, absolutely skyrocketing? I was like, I'm not here to sell. I don't care. I'm not motivated in that way. So I'll hit the target. You'll not have to worry about me. I'm not in your hair. You're not have to think about me. Just leave me alone. And I was always getting moaned at. Why aren't you doing more? I was like, because I don't want to do more. That's not what I'm here for. Just, just take it as a nice, easy person in your team that you don't have to worry about. Yeah. 
because I'm reliable. I'll hit the target and then I'll do nothing more. Oh, see, that was the exact opposite. I, I wanted to be the person selling the most. I had to sell the most cars. Oh, I don't care. That was always my motivation. I, I genuinely, like, life is too short for me to care. I'm not competitive <laughs> enough. I've, I've dealt with so much worse stuff that meant so much more that selling you a new phone does not interest me. If you need a new phone and I tell you that this is what you need and this will fix all of those problems for you, happy to do it yeah. because I'm helping. But I'm not bothered. Yeah. I'll fix a problem, but I don't care if I'm selling. Life has got way much more... It's like, true. Like, so life is bigger than that. That's very true. But I don't think but I'm I understand myself how, to. Yeah, a lot of people are motivated by that, the buzz and the sale yeah, yeah. and the competition and being better and... But also, it was two things. I think one, I always, whatever it is that I do, I try to do that to the very best of my ability. Yeah. That's having a car presenting it to you. I was the best service person ever. I was the best at doing the job that I wanted to do and I signed up for. I was a good salesperson and I could be the best if I really was motivated in that way. But that's not what I was there for. I was was the best at doing the thing that I was there for. But other than that, not interested. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, it depends on how you approach it. Life is all about perspective. It is true. It is true. But car sales taught me a lot. When I started building show cars that's how I kind of got into what I'm doing now so right. I then in early noughties went to join the family business which was a style specialist which yep. was then just on the cusp of turning into a Subaru specialist right at the height of the kind of Fast and the Furious peak of Max Power era yeah so obviously we used to build a lot of show cars then right and I used to bring up companies like Toyo Tires or Ibac Springs and say like I'm building a show car can I possibly bag a set of springs I've got two magazine features lined up I'm taking it to three big shows yeah um, you know I'll make sure that I deliver same as you photography all this kind of stuff and they were always very nice and said yes of course there you go there's your set of springs then I'd go to four shows and I'd go to three magazine features so I'd always try and give them a little bit more than I said yeah and you know give them more pictures than I said and do a bit more so of course the next year they're, they're calling me yeah I said oh, actually uh, would you, are you building a show car this year? Because we'd like to give you some stuff because we're very happy with what you did last year. And that just goes back to a car sales mentality. Great yeah. customer service. Yeah, delighting. So if I've said I'll do this for you, if I give you a little bit more than that, you'll only be really happy, won't you? Yeah. You can't and be, oh, you've given us too much stuff. <laughs> yeah. How dare you? Yeah, you've given me too much coverage. And then it got to the point where companies were saying to me, look, we're about to launch a new tyre or a new spring. Could you help us to launch it? Oh, you're an influencer from the... Well, from back in the from day. back in the day, yeah. But actually what I thought what I needed to do was to start an automated PR company, and that's how Promotive, which has been going for nearly 20 years now, started, Amazing. basically. Is we thought, you know, that in the days of magazine publishing they needed a conduit if you were Toyo Tires or Outback Springs they needed somebody that could put the press packets together get them out to the magazines place them on all the staff cars all that kind of stuff yeah yeah and that's how I started oh right and it all sort of grew from there really and it's and it hasn't really changed so, autom- so automotive PR is still my proper job that's the day to day bread and butter of what I do I mean, right. work with some lovely companies now but then TV happened crikey 10 years ago and all by meeting a really nice guy called Paul Mazzal who's a TV producer I was at the time managing a stunt driver called Terry Grant yep. who if you've just been to the Autosport show you would have seen and Terry and used he does good wood and all sorts oh he's yeah Terry is a you know a big deal and so during his formative time when he was becoming a big deal I managed his commercial affairs used to book a lot of his events and things for him get a lot of his sponsors together so a lot the yeah. firms that I was working with in PR I sort of brought into Terry and helped him to get sponsorship helped him get things like the Race of Champions which all sort of brought his price up as it were brought yeah, his act yeah. up and through him I met a really nice guy called Paul Mazel, who's a TV producer Talk, uh, Paul took me on to write TV formats for him 
one of which got made, which was a show for Santa Pod. Right. And the idea of the show for Santa Pod, it was just covering events that Santa Pod were doing, things like Ultimate Streetcar, yeah. Bug Jam, stuff like that. And when we actually wrote the show, the idea was it was just going to be like a, what they call a magazine-style show, so a little three minutes on drag racing, yeah. three minutes on the show and shine paddock, three minutes on one of the comedians. But they didn't really know how to present it. It was just going to be voiceovered. Right. And we just tried doing a little bit on camera which was actually going to help the voiceover guys. The idea was I would do a bit to camera, it was never going to get used, it would get used... tell them what to say. Yeah, so if you're in the edit suite, use this, this is drag racing, drag racing's two guys, quarter of a mile, 440 yards, the lights go out, the first one past the post wins. And there were little explanations to help the voiceover. Yeah. Then when they edited them, they went, you know what, they were were okay, we just put them in. They they (laughs) were... your voice then. Yeah. (laughs) And so I was there presenting these things. We then did a little series of these. And then we cut the results of that into a show. I never thought anything would ever come of it. Literally, I'd done, I don't know, I think two years of shows on motors and Eurosport. 15 people probably watched them, ever. <laughs> and then we just cut the best bits, which is a very loose term, into a tiny showreel, put it on YouTube, and I never thought anything more about it. I thought, one day, maybe I'll do some more shows. Literally, three days after that, got a phone call from a Discovery producer saying, we're casting for a new car show, just found this clip on YouTube. But anyway, I think it had 10 views. Yeah, yeah. As well. he was like 10%. Yeah, he, he was literally 10% it. of the people that had seen this video. So I've just watched this, this thing. There's, there's something there. Just come down to London. And anyway... Well, 10 years ago is reasonably early into YouTube popularity as well. Like, yeah. it's before millions and millions and millions and millions of subscribers were what you needed to be seen by anyone. But it was bizarre. So I went down and did this sort of screen test, which, you know, stand in front of the camera, just talk, and they obviously bizarrely saw something. Then they says, right, we're going to do what's called a sizzle. So sizzle is you filming car content. And they had this idea for a show called Lords of the Car Hordes. Right. And the idea was that it would be me helping people who have vast car collections, so you can kind of see where the fit goes. Yeah. And the idea was that they would sell three or four really bad cars and use the money from those to finance the restoration of another one. So they said, right, we'll do a sizzle take. So we did it. Dan Allen, who's the guy that's responsible for creating, or half responsible for creating We The Dealers, came out as a development producer. We shot this sizzle in the worst weather you've ever seen. It was like raining, 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 raining. <laughs> and they looked at it. They went, oh, he, he's, he's OK, he's all right. But it's really raining. So this, can you just film another one? Because it just looks so depressing. <laughs> so we booked another day's filming. Dan came out again. It rained like even more, it was like biblical rain, like the worst rain you've ever so the seen. The first one looked way better. Yeah, certainly. And then we tried a third one, and it got so rain we didn't even bother to film. So basically, they just went, "Look, we're going to make this in America because it's just it's sunnier." Yeah, it looks. Do you want to go to America? And I couldn't. I had two young kids at the time, so I just thanks, but no thanks. I thought that was it. That was my TV opportunity. Yeah, yeah. one of those things. I don't worry about it. So I just kind of parked that I would ever be a television presenter. It wasn't something I'd ever really set out to do. I'd had a little moment. I tried my sizzle tape. It had all gone away. Just got on with my life. Yeah. Carry on with my automotive PR. And then another year or so later, phone rings again. I've got another idea for a show. <laughs> it's called Turbo Pickers. Um, it's just basically you buying really cheap old cars, do them but really cheaply. Do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Sounds like so street, yeah. Yeah, so we did that. That was only, I think, five episodes. But during that time, what was great, I went to a photo shoot at a party and met Drew. Yeah. And Drew is a proper petrolhead, and he loves air-cooled Volkswagens, probably even more than I do, if that's possible. And he's such an encyclopedic knowledge on anything air-cooled, whether it's Volkswagen or Porsche. Yeah. So about this big, important dude, we've got all of our bosses there from Discovery. And all we did was all night to talk about old Volkswagens, basically. <laughs> and actually, Brian Johnson was there. That was my claim to fame. Oh, from, amazing. And he just got a show on Quest at the time called Cars at Rock. And he is the nicest man you'll ever meet. He's lovely. I... So back to David Lillywhite and Magneto magazine, 
I was down at the Savile Row Concourse. Oh, yeah. Because it was on my birthday. And a friend of Did mine... Did you pick up a nice suit while you were there? No, I can't afford Savile Row suits. But a friend of mine has um, an embroidery business based underneath one of the tailors. Yeah. So she had all the passes. And I'd mentioned, like, I'd, I'd mentioned that it was my birthday. She went, I'll get you a pass so you can come down. I was like, amazing. amazing. So I went down. It turns out a guy I went to school with works in one of the tailors as well. So I had two reasons to like go and say hello and see what was going on. And I was in one of the because they had all they had like little um things on in them so it was like a talk or a display or a wine or whatever and i was waiting for one of these talks and i was stood um just loitering really and david lillywhite was there so i was like oh i, th- I think i know who you are and we we're chatting away then his phone rang he's like no brian it's fine no your shorts are fine just wear your shorts you're all right now i'll see you in a minute Phone. I was like, everything all right? He's like, yeah, Brian Johnson's asking if I'm all, if he's all right to wear shorts. It's in the middle of June. Of course he's all yeah. right. And I was wearing shorts. I was like, oh, yeah. well, I hope so, because I'm wearing shorts. Well, as a band, their guitarist made a, a trademark of wearing shorts. Yeah. Well, Angus, oh, and then he arrived, anyway. and he had a flip phone. He's like, oh, I've got me shorts. I was like, he's the loveliest man I've ever met. Like, he's he really so is. down to earth, considering who he is. Well, he, he was very similar. So Drew didn't want to be corporate the whole night, so we spent all night talking about cars. And then Brian was there, and I'd never met him before. He turned out to be, and he just wanted to talk about race cars yeah. so we just the three of us just kind of in the quiet corner and everyone else was being corporate and telly and we just had that talk about what are your numbers this year I don't care I <laughs> yeah. talk race cars and that's what it was and Drew and I became firm friends that night I helped him to get his race licence and then we were just chatting for about three or four years and then sort of again Discovery said to Drew do you want to do a car show Yeah. and uh, Drew said I'd love to do a car show can I do it with Paul and he went well not really because I hadn't really had that much presence on, on telly at the time so yeah. they, they wanted a much bigger name somebody that was a bit more established so they screen tested and sort of put forward other people they thought would be much better for the show but then, which is great for your ego isn't it <laughs> well yeah, I kind of understand that I think with television you sort of have to reach critical mass as a presenter yeah. and whether because I've not really ever played the game or tried too hard to be a television presenter it's all stuff that's happened organically I don't yeah. necessarily think I have and I'm very comfortable with that because a lot of positives come from not being a hugely famous TV presenter you don't become a diva and all that sort but of but also you just don't get recognised and the, the most wonderful thing I've noticed you know, having a few friends now who are very very successful TV presenters it's not all that yeah. because you can't walk to the paper shop or you can't walk across one side of the NEC to the other if I'm with Mike Brewer or Drew you know walking across a two minute walk takes 25-30 minutes everybody stops you whereas I can just walk across <laughs> there's a lot to be said for that because <laughs> the fan club is nobody it's, it's, that's it <laughs> but I'm very very comfortable with that I'd rather have, have anonymity is the most important thing what well, they you say it's better to be rich and not known than yeah. poor and well known I, I could I concur one yeah. million percent so to me all I ever want out of TV is the chance to make fun stuff with my friends yeah. hopefully educate and entertain a few people and then if nobody knows me afterwards that's even this is the perks of a podcast even better I, I'm completely invisible in my podcast nobody really knows what I look like honestly stay with it yeah. stay if all they've it. known me for is the podcast I'm great because nobody's going to bump into me at shit. like oh, we, were, we were at the Sunday Scramble and I know most of the like businesses there so I know quite a lot of people there just from being around that place i was wearing a cap and a jacket rather than anything like super branded yeah so normally i've got a hoodie on it's got a big print on the back and it's quite clear who i am but i was just wearing a, a hat with a logo on it and a my corduroy jacket so i was in like complete incognito mode and there were people that i know walked straight past me and i was like you know what i'm not gonna like grab people or say anything because i'll see them from time to time anyway it'll be more interesting to see how many people actually spot me like my mates and stuff and because I was in like complete bland not liveried up to the hills I had a really quiet day yeah it's, it's, really quite, nice it's quite nice sometimes isn't it? 
I got to see all the cars, I got to chat to the people that I wanted to chat to, and I didn't have to, I wasn't tired at the end of it. And as much as I love seeing my friends and catching up with people, a day like the Scramble, you're there from like eight till two most of the time, and all you're doing is talking to people, yeah. which is great, I love it, but I'm always exhausted afterwards, I'm like, I've only been out for like It is really knackering talking to people, isn't it? Yeah, you're having to process so much information, and it's one of the most fun things to do. And I'm very lucky to have moved into the world where I get to do that. But it is really tiring. It is. <laughs> but going back to Drew, so Drew and I, obviously, we were friends. They tried, you know, there's people like Johnny Smith, people who had a much higher profile on the channel that they wanted to pair with Drew. Yeah. But then they just do a sizzle, which is, again, where they just film you doing a, a test film, if you like. So yeah. we went and borrowed a Citroen DS, I think it was, for the day. And just and talk to each other like we always talk to each other. So when you see how we are on the show with each other, none of that's scripted. It's, I mean, that entire show is completely unscripted. None of us know what will be said from the second the camera's turned on. And all they do is let the cameras run all day, basically. And just catch whatever happens. Exactly that. So that's all real. Everything you see is real. If we agree, it's because we agree. If we disagree, it's because we disagree. Yeah. And obviously we're like an old married couple most of the time, just as mates are, because he's very opinionated. I'm quite opinionated. He's quite forcefully opinionated. I'm perhaps a little bit more like Kofi Nan, trying to make everybody happy, but... Well, there's the, the customer services. Oh, that's customer, yeah, and that's the thing, trying to find the nice, nice way through everything. <laughs> but I think it makes good telly, because obviously they watched it, and even though there were much bigger names in the frame, I think because the dynamic was so true and so believable, I think yeah. the Discovery said, you know what, that's... Well, that's the, the kind of the winning formula, really, isn't it? Because we'll talk Top Gear as a, a show. People didn't watch that for the cars. No. Like, car enthusiasts love to see the cars, but they watched it for the dynamic. It was an entertainment show more than it was a car show. Oh, yeah, show. completely. People who didn't like cars would watch it because of what adventure well, My kids watched on. it. Yeah. So I've got two daughters who aren't that into cars, sadly, but probably the 13-year-old. Like, she's watched the Botswana special... Uh, I don't know, hundred times. Yeah, she can recite it line for line. Did you take her to festival with the exceptional? Uh, I didn't actually because Hammond was there with Oliver. Yeah, she could have met a hero. The car, not Richard. Hammond. What's really funny as well is this shows you how incestuous TV is. That our old series producer and our old director Marcus now produces Richard's show. That's oh, how tiny the, the world of car TV is. So the he went down to Golding Barn Garage and they did some it was like a show called like Richard Hammond's Question Time or something like that and that was filmed in my friend's cafe was it? which is where I started Tacona no in way. the cafe that they filmed that in and that's, that's how small this world is like you're only ever like one or two connections away well from yeah you. well Car TV is so incestuous there's about there's about 60 to 70 amazing sort of directors producers camera people sound people and they're on so they'll do they a do season everything. of Top Gear season of Savage Hunters season of Fifth Gear and they just a little just go around. Yeah. <laughs> well they've got all that expensive equipment they might as well use it well that's it and obviously they're very very good at what they do and yeah. you tend to find the same people gravitate to the same sort of productions in a cyclical manner it makes a lot of sense it is, it's, and it's fun making car television has been a lot of fun and we were very lucky that we got to do a huge block at once as well so we've just done a, a show that came out last week with a Jensen Interceptor yeah the, that's the one that it was the fir- like the first car that you picked up and the last car that you finished yeah it? so that car took we thought it was four years actually it was ended up nearly five years that car <laughs> and the, how it works we did a pilot series that went quite well and then Discovery very kindly booked a massive block of series which you don't normally get you normally get one or two if you're lucky yeah I think they booked something like five series in a chunk Jeez. so you can be very brave when you've got five series because you know you can buy really horrendous cars yeah and then you've got the time to sort it out because you could buy it at the start of series two and then execute it by the end of series four or five although that one ended up being at the end of series eight <laughs> so that, <laughs> that had a, a seven uh, season gap but we bought that car and it was horrendous and basically someone had gone to look at it said it was slightly better than it was and by the time we turned up of course by this point you've got an entire film crew with you yeah, yeah. the channels agreed it 
we know we've had a little sniff that the chassis number according to the owners club people were like 90% sure it was the old press car right so we thought okay we probably want to save this car and, we thought, and also if we didn't that car was never really economically viable to save it might as well get done with a, yeah. with a bit of money behind yeah, it yeah I don't think anyone in their right mind would have bought that car to save it because it was never going to make money and we knew that at the start but luckily Discovery were kind enough to, to let us do it the production company Curve were brave enough to put the budget into it yeah. and even though we pretty much knew at the very beginning it was never going to work financially we thought it's going to be a nice journey it's going to be a nice bit of telly and hopefully it will then live on for another 30, 40, yeah, yeah. 50 years and just telling the story of how that car came about because it was really cool I mean Drew went to see the archive of every letter so every time that car got signed out by a journalist and signed back in in those days it was wonderful because people used to write these wonderful letters they asking for it in the first place and yeah. of course it was the era of thank you letters so people would write these lovely letters back saying the wonderful times they'd had with it so the guy that owns that, that car that it's huge stuff. absolutely huge the guy that owns it now is everything from the original letter from the MD telling it to get put onto the production line as the press demo saying spend a bit more time make it a little bit better there's a letter from the uh, shop foreman saying this is crap do this again <laughs> this paint's awful can we do it again God. all of this this amazing story of this car all the way through its life so what it's, a treasure yeah I'm so so glad that we saved it but yeah. we obviously lost quite a lot of the production company's money <laughs> I was going to say like how much of the so producing a show where you take something you fix it and you sell it how much of that has to be like is real in terms of like we actually spent 10 grand we spent 5 fixing it and we sold it for 20 is that realistic or are they like... Yeah, well, we try to be. I mean, that's why we've showed a loss and we had to really fight with Discovery to show the loss. Yeah. Because obviously Discovery want us to be, in inverted commas, the car experts. They want us to be this kind of unassailable knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's always in. a win if these two are doing it. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, they're obviously, they're the messiahs. But you know in, in real life that's not like that. And also in the motor trade, if you're restoring cars, every tenth one, you're going to burn yourself. And, and we've just said, if we make a mistake, you should always show that on TV. If you show a price, it should always be the retail price. Yeah. What we don't want to do as well is a problem when people go in and blag things and do deals. You know, and if a job to fix your stub axle should be five hundred quid, and then the presenter blags it for two fifty, as soon as that show goes out, that poor everybody's going to yeah, that, that, that poor artisan's going to get a hundred phone calls saying, "I want my stub axle repairing for two hundred fifty quid." Yeah, and then they've either got to honour it or look as if they're lifting people's leg when they charge five hundred. So we've always had this policy that a that we pay for everything. Yeah. So there, there are no blags on our show. No one ever gave us anything for free in exchange for airtime. A because there's all sorts of off come rules around you can't do that and also it's allowed us to cut things so there's been instances in the past like the Lotus Esprit is a great example we went to have a, a radiator recall done which was a beautiful job just down the road here in Nottingham they spent the entire day doing it obviously filming with this and we paid full retail for it and then we cut that scene because you had no like you know, had no responsibility to show it yeah well that's you it we paid for it and that's the other reason so as a filmmaker as a production company if you've paid for every part of that process fair and square obviously people give their time which is very decent of them uh, and obviously we can hopefully allow them to, to use the fact they've been involved with the car yeah, yeah. as some kind of, of step up. But if we've paid for the part and then we don't put the scene in... Then they can't you, really about it, can they? Well, yeah, I mean, you want everyone to be in if you can, but occasionally we just do so much on a car, something has to give. Yeah, nobody would want to watch the episode if it was four hours long. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is every bolt we've tightened. Although people are saying, detail. actually, funny enough, on Twitter, I must have had, I'm not even exaggerating, 150 DMs and messages, people saying, can we have a four-hour edit of the gentleman? <laughs> I want to see the whole thing. Well, yeah, because so much happened obviously it's a feature length because it is five years worth of work how yeah, do you put yeah. five years worth of work into 48 minutes <laughs> including when you've got obviously the sale scene which is probably four minutes yeah, and there's yeah. the buy scene which is maybe seven minutes so it's actually four years worth of work in 30 minutes it's just a time lapse yeah it's kind of <laughs> like that and that's always the problem you've got when you're 
Racing Cartel is you've obviously got to show you the best bits the edited highlights but yeah. you're trying to give also the depth of restoration and the one thing that we said with our show we, we'd never lie about the, the buyers the buyers are always the real bias if you see somebody at the end of that show that's bought that car that's actually the person that's bought that car yeah. or if they're shy or for professional reasons they don't want to be on telly so we had a couple of very very high net worth collectors buy a couple of cars understandably they don't want to be on TV yeah. they don't want to show where their collection is so they just sent either their valeter or their logistics guy so we'd accept that if it's your man yeah, your, yeah. or your woman uh, coming to pick up the car as long as it's your it's your car yeah your appointed yeah, representative yeah. <laughs> We don't mind that, but, but everybody who's bought a car is real. Everyone we've bought them from is real. Or again, in the case of somebody that wants to sell a car that didn't feel comfortable being on camera, yeah. they've appointed somebody that they've then sold the car to, and then we have bought the car from them. Right. So it's all legitimate. And I think that way, because car TV has been up until now a little bit fictitious, if we're honest. There's yeah, been a lot of made-up scenes, made-up buyers, made-up prices. And the problem is it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help anybody to learn the pitfalls of what can go wrong. Yeah. It doesn't really help anybody that we're kind of making up prices and making up sales. And also, I think, from an industry, with my industry hat on, the amount of people that say, I'm so glad that you've showed losses or you've showed how much things really cost to take all the risks of this particular task it's, it's education isn't it really yeah, that's yeah. what a good show does and that's why you're on Discovery and not uh, like Channel 4 yeah <laughs> you're on a place that talks about like documentaries and things rather than oh we're doing a biopic of this and it's all fake <laughs> but I just think people deserve the truth and I think it's better telly if you do Drew and I did an MGA a few series back and Drew had this idea I think he'd been drinking for like some stickers sort of patinated stickers right. that look like old race livery from the 1950s it was a 57 car and we did it and the lady that did it executed Drew's brief beautifully she did exactly what he asked for but what he asked for was terrible yeah yeah so it the wasn't her was fault crap, not the so we went to her again paid a fair and square she'd done a beautiful job and it looked awful and I got the car back to the workshop and I said to the producer I said look I need to get Drew back because he won't like this when he sees it he's like no we have to run with it because producers bless them I mean John is an amazing producer John Willett our series producer I think they've come through so many years of television where you've got to almost stick with the narrative or fake the narrative and I think it's been a re-education for a lot of people who've worked on other shows to come onto our show and just learn it's got to be as close to what actually happened as possible obviously there's an artifice of television there's an artifice of time frame you get making any show but if you can take the viewer on a journey that's so close to what actually happened well, it's more authentic, isn't it? And yeah. This is what we came back to earlier on. It's, that authenticity is is so valuable, and it really does endear people to what you're doing. Like, if it was all fake, and then we met you in the real world, and you're like, I've never sold a car in my life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I had so much faith in you. But that's the thing, isn't it? And then I think it undermines the whole show. So they actually let us show that mistake, and we peeled the stickers off, and had to start again, basically. Yeah. And that poor woman's like, oh, put someone. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a good scene. She did her job brilliantly. Yeah. But if you're a, a person providing a service and you've been briefed poorly by the client that's on the client and because it was on us it was our mistake we said we should own it yeah same with the Jensen you know we basically committed to a car that was never going to make money you can't then say to the viewer I've made money yeah it's, it's not very fair. Someone's going to go and buy a Jensen and be like, yeah. oh, why am I not making money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what everybody said. I've had so many restorers say thank you for showing that big ticket cars generally burn you. Yeah. Because they do. Because now everyone's buying a car like that thinking, okay, I'm going to put 25 grand into it, but I'm doing it because I want one. Yeah, yeah. They're not doing it for the, oh, I'll be able to flip this and make a load of yeah. money off it. Because generally you can't. It's very, very hard to restore a car and make money. Very hard to do. Yeah. And I have friends that, they are moving from like doing bespoke coach building and high end like work on specific cars to going right we're going to build six 
of this car in this spec and they're going to be this much money because we know all of our margins when we start and we're not going to have you turn around in a month's time going why have you charged me half an hour's work for fitting this bracket yeah that should only take 10 minutes it's like no it took half an hour so i've charged you i could do it in 10 minutes like crack on yeah. i'll give you your money back you if build you it can. Yeah. yeah so they they they're moving away from doing that kind of thing because then you go look the money is so hard to to make in that industry yeah it's easier to go, I've bought a chassis, I'm going to turn it into a, a restoration or a resto mod or something like that, and I'm going to sell it to someone for this amount of money. And I know every margin along the way, because they're not just restoring a car and trying to sell it. They're going, I've built something new using this old foundation. So whether it's like an old Land Rover and it's now the best Land Rover you've ever seen in your life, but it's 120 grand. Yeah. Yeah. It's better for them than going, oh, you want me to make a Land Rover nice for you? And then you argue with them every step of the way, or they have to try and source an old Land Rover, make it look like a nice Land Rover that's clean and tidy, and then try and sell it, and then someone goes, oh, it's just a normal Land Rover. Where's the money gone? (laughs) It's true. But that's the thing. It's so hard, and it's finding the right cars to add value, because the best car you can buy is like a 70% car that you make into a 90% car. Yeah. There is true value and true money to be made there. Right. Take a really decent car and just knock the edges off. But if you take terrible car and make it brilliant you don't really it's make it a big pitfall yeah so. you've always got to look at the the value gap yeah where you where you bring it in and where you let it go right and God. 70 to 90 is pretty much perfect problem is if you try to make a 100 percent car chasing that final 10 percent is hideously expensive well, yeah because it's different between you like, this car's got nice chrome that's not perfect but the car still presents beautifully yeah making all that nice chrome perfect chrome building a concourse car yeah that's so expensive and funny enough in the nates in the current series we've just done one so we took a really nice lancia fulvia which was pretty much i don't know an, a 90 percent car yeah. and we tried to make it 100 percent car and it's so hard to do <laughs> if you really want to do it properly so we had all these concourse experts help us yeah and, and you're changing screws and gear knobs and wheels and wheel nuts God. and washer bottles which are you know maybe a half a year out because somebody lost the original one or it cracked and they put one off a slightly later car oh and it's not uh, matching in the yeah and, you, and you've got to chase these tiny tiny infinitesimally small details but concourse judges want it so it's we've never done a car like that before where we're just doing tiny just tiny, tiny yeah. it's a really fun episode to watch actually i'll have to look out for that one i need to get myself a discovery plus subscription. you do or it's coming out every wednesday on the tv license i think request doesn't it do you need TV no but you have to if you want to watch terrestrial tv at all Okay. So what you can do now, and this this is some handy advice for the people my age that okay. don't watch TV. You tell the TV license agency that you only stream. So I've not got an aerial connected to my TV. You, you, there's a thing you go, I only stream and I don't use the iPlayer. And then they go, okay, thank you for letting us know. We're not going to come and knock on yeah. your door and try and get in. But you can watch it around your mum's. Yeah, my mom, I'm going to my mum's now. So there you go. I'll, I'll, so what's around there? To be fair, my stepdad loves Discovery, so they've Step probably already do. seen it. Yeah. That's, that's the thing I always get, my dad loves your show. That's literally <laughs> the catchphrase. Anyone ever comes up? If I'm being very brutally honest with you, when you started in the motor trade, it was the year I was born. <laughs> was it really? Yeah. Just such a youth. I'm 50 this year, that's the thing. So, my, so I'm, I'm really feeling my age now. My mum is 50. Two. So I'm literally old enough to be your dad. You're old enough to be my dad, yeah. That's a depressing thought. You had it? kids later on, so... Yeah, it's true, it's true. That's right, which is what I'm going to do, because I'm nearly 30, so... But that's a good age to have them, because then you're kind of young enough to I'm have done adult. some stuff, yeah, yeah, old enough to still be able to do some stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I understand who I am as a person, I'm not trying to figure out who I am, whilst also trying to bring a child into the world and go, oh, I've got to create a person now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know who I am now, so I can go, right, I know who I am, so I'm not learning that bit while I'm trying to teach you. So you'll get my perspective as an adult rather than a... Well, I don't think we ever really grow up. Though, no, 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 never. I'm the, probably the biggest child I know. 
and I'm always like, oh, that'll be fun, let's do it. And then it's like, why are you doing that for? Oh, I just thought it'd be fun, sorry. That's <laughs> why so I've got a Renault 5. I was like, I really want one of those. I, I saw Renault some Fives. driving in the, in the snow, so now I've got one for when it snows. A friend of mine who's got a really very beautiful, I think, it, I don't know if he got it from Spain, but somewhere very hot and dry and lovely anyway. And it's just a very early Renault 5, the original shape model. Oh, nice. Left hand drive, completely rust free, just with the Gordini alloys on. Just minting it. three studs as well, so I can't Yeah, in white. And I, every month I say, please can I buy that car from you? A friend of mine drove to Scotland to try and buy a Mark One Gordini Turbo. Took a trailer, everything. Got there, noticed that there was some crash damage that the owner hadn't spotted. Drove all the way back to Essex. Probably repairable, though. Probably is, but not for the price the guy wanted for it. Uh, yeah, if he'd have knocked a couple of grand off the price, he'd have probably bought it off him because he's got workshop and mechanics and all that. That's where mine goes every time it breaks, which it's currently due for a, a collection. Um, it, there's something... It's got a couple of gremlins and it won't start and it needs a new window mechanism, which I've got, just not fitted, and I've got some new seats that need rails welding to make them fit and stuff like that. So but I think Mark 1 Renault 5, Mark 2 Renault 5, an original Phase 1 Clio, like I've got a Clio 60, I just yeah. think they are the most beautiful design. And they're so much fun. Yeah. Like... I have had more smiles in that Renault 5, possibly, than I have in the 86. I can I th- believe that. I think because the 86 is kind of a performance car, I'm always terrified something isn't right with it. And because it will then go quick enough that if something isn't right, you can have a really horrible crack. Yeah. I'm then always a little bit anxious as to, like, what was that sound? Whereas in the Renault, it just makes noises. And you go, well, I'm only doing 20 mile an hour, so if I if a wheel falls off, we're just going to stop? But I think that's the future. I wrote a column for Haggerty uh, last month or the month before, and it's all about the, the future, I think, is driving slow cars fast. Yeah, Not always. fast cars slow. So my commute when I lived in Hertfordshire, I used to commute into Essex, which we were 100 yards out of Essex, not like I was properly in Hertfordshire. It was all country lanes, and I bought that Renault to kind of run around in and daily drive as yeah. much as I could. And there was cool. a, yeah, yeah, it's fun, it's cool, and when it works, it's, it's great. There was a guy, there was a motorcyclist whose commute was the same as mine, and he would always do 40 in the 60s, and it would drive me crazy. And in the 86, it's fine, I catch him up, overtake him, I'm off. There's no reward for that, I'm just annoyed briefly, and then it's okay. In the Renault, it was a daily challenge, because I'd have to kind of time it so like that... Like tortoise racing, like not, when you get two trucks on the A1. No, not even that, because I'd catch him and try and overtake him, he'd see me and just boot it, and he's on a motorbike, he's just going to leave... So what I'd have to do is I have to if I'd see him I'd have to stay back and time it so that I was doing sixty by the the like the exit of the corner that had the straight after it so that if it was clear I was already doing sixty I could pass him before he had a chance to spot me so every day I had this little challenge where if I encountered this motorbike I'd have to like plan my attack in advance it was so much more fun than just it going boom, pass them off or go but anything the fastest car in the world is a holy hire car isn't it so if you've yeah. got a little tiny engine lightweight hatchback we, we had an iGo they're the ones that's that's the future so because you can't get a speed camera ticket if you're doing sixty flat out and it feels like a hundred and yeah on a 60 that's the best kind of driving you the can do the flip side of this is we were in spain with this igo and we wanted to go to ronda which is up in the mountains that was impossibly hard <laughs> third gear at one point revving the nuts of it just to get up this hill because the mountain road isn't like it's not gradual it's quite steep and this little igo really didn't want to get up this hill <laughs> i was like well then they feel like the renault 4 replacement that they are don't yeah, they? yeah that's the thing they feel like kind of oh my god this is the slowest car in the it proletariat transport yeah like an old lady's passing you on a mobility scooter because it's got like more torque than your igo <laughs> my, my words it's the future we're all gonna be buying really cool little old slow cars and driving them really fast we're ahead of the curve then. Yeah. Especially with your little lovely Subaru that you've got down there. That's very slow, to be fair. You can actually get out and run faster than that. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's lovely though it's cute isn't it well while we're here and seeing as we've been chatting for an hour and 20 we should wrap up because people will be turning off this podcast no I've done one drift. of these for three hours but did anyone listen to it yeah and I've had so much really nice feedback <laughs> oh really it. yeah because <laughs> so the average journey though isn't it's like an hour so if you go over an hour people no like, people I've found people go I've got a whole week's worth of episodes now because I've got four for a two hour podcast wow. like that. so if, you, if you're driving on a long journey on holiday maybe exactly yeah, visiting relatives in Norfolk this is the podcast for you exactly yeah. and I, so I got into podcasting when I was down in Sussex and I was um, account manager for UPS and I'd be on the road for four hours a day. So I was like, I've got bored of listening to music. What can I listen to? I got into podcasts. And that's how I got into that. And then they get really bored of listening to this one. It's an hour and 20 minutes long. Ah, you'll be fine. It's the conversation's interesting, that's the thing. So while we're here, you've got all of your lovely collection nearby. What's in there? Also, well, this is sort of some of the collection in this. It's about half that you're seeing yeah. here. So there's also lots of old Subarus, because I work with Subaru and I used to tune them. Yep. I used to sell them, actually, in the 90s. So I've got a lot of Subarus in Pretza, GC8 in Pretza, Type UK. There's an SVX down there. Yep. There's a Subaru 360. There's a kind of a, there's an XT over in the next unit as well. Right. XT Coupe, which is a pretty rare old bus. <laughs> and I've also got home, there's a GLF, which if you remember the Cannonball run, yep. the funky little hatchback that Jackie Chan drives. Is that a... Oh, I always thought it was a Mitsubishi. No, that's a Subaru. Subaru. He later signed me a Mitsubishi, but for that film he was he did a the Evo 6 yeah. in well, that. He used to have a commercial relationship, so if you like, if you watch a lot of Jackie Chan films, loads of cars in it are Mitsubishi. Well, there was, was it Who Am I he had his yeah. Evo 6 in? He did indeed. And there was one, because he was a racing driver that lost his memory, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. That was it. And there was that bit where they were being chased. And he well, that's why he starts in a, a Shogun at the beginning, yeah. Pajero at the beginning, and there's always, it's all Mitsubishi. If you, if you know that, if you realise that he had a long, long contract with him, you start to see so many Mitsubishis in Jackie Chan films. But, Cannonball was Subaru was a Subaru I've got a lot of old Saabs because I used to work for Saabs we've got a 99 here there's a 9000 Carlson that's very lovely there's a cool old Mercedes 200 there's my split screen van a Peugeot 505 Familial the Peugeot 505 is possibly the coolest car here I think and that includes the limo the TBR the Plymouth Prowler the one of one um, GM Pontiac Tosian yeah have a Google of that if you're listening to this Google Pontiac Tosian not what you're driving obviously that would be irresponsible yeah we can't condone that no we mustn't do that get your passenger to Google it yeah look it's called the Pontiac Tosian. It's very strange. Alex Goy, funny enough, who you mentioned earlier, did a wonderful video at Carfection on this car. Oh, really? And he came and drove it. Yeah, he's had about a quarter of a million views because he presents it so brilliantly. Yeah. And it's the story of the car. And the story of the car is GM wanted to create a blue-collar Ferrari for the masses that was relatively affordable. So they took the middle of an F-body Trans Am, which is Knight Rider shape, if you want to try and reference it, and then coach built a fiberglass front and rear end with nuts and automotive. They then decided they want to make a 200-mile-an-hour car. Right. And the way they did that was to go to Banks Marine. Now, Banks Marine make the motors for offshore powerboat racing, most of which are small box Chevys with two enormous turbos on and a massive plenum. And they basically bought an offshore powerboat racing engine and put it in the car. And they thought, we'll make this a blue-collar accessible supercar using powerboat turbos. So the car ran, according to um, accredited anecdotal evidence by three people and one magazine. The car did 206 miles an hour in 1984 (laughs) on a very long road in Nebraska, which is where it was built. This is how Hennessy get all of their speeds done as well on very long roads. Yeah, like well, you've got them in America. They're like yeah. kind of Marlborough country, isn't it? And they just, you can drive. There's, there are roads that are literally 10 miles of straight tarmac. Yeah, it's insane. Like people go, oh, I'd love to do Route 66. And it's like, okay, we'll go and do it and realise how much time you spend doing nothing. Yeah, it's just literally a straight line. But that's why American cars, you know, the whole sort of trope of the fact they didn't handle the whole... Because they didn't need to go. Because they need to. Because a lot of American roads are very, very straight. And funny enough, you now have a Mustang. 
before you arrived in a Mustang anyway. Yeah, well, I've had that, I've had that three years, which is crazy. I bought that just before lockdown. Right. I've always wanted one. I think... And you waited la- for them to not have a live rear axle so that you could actually leave junctions without killing everybody nearby. Well, that's you can really make those handle because well, they've got independent suspension and they're quite a decent engine, the Coyote. And I thought also, I think we will look back at this period. This is kind of the golden period of when you can still buy V8, you can still buy manuals. Yeah. And when all cars have to be automatic because if we do move to the hybrid or electric or whatever it is they're going to be automatic yeah, yeah they have to be even if they do a simulated manual they're still going to have an automatic function because conan's egg have done a fancy manual dsg thing haven't they yeah you can flip a switch and it's got a clutch and stuff which is insane but you can't beat the tactility of an old-fashioned v8 and i think that car which is a v8 manual with factory recaros yeah i think they'll be the one they'll be like a brooklyn's capri i think people will look back at the last of those mustangs so if you've got a v8 manual non-magna ride car right they'll be the ones and i've never bought never ever bought a brand new car i've leased them i've had company cars but i've never walked into a showroom put my money down and, and bought bought and brand new one is that the first car. time that was the first time and the last time i'll ever do it probably as well yeah and, and i had such a wonderful experience went into the sandy cliff ford dealership here in nottingham and the yeah. lads were absolutely brilliant and talk about an example of how it should be done yeah, Going yeah. Back, you know take a car out for a day see if you like it and just and bought one and what's mad is what I paid for that car three years ago, it has lost £2,000. Is that it? £2,000. You've basically had a free car for three years? Yeah, that's the crazy thing. That's mad. Because the new Mustang's so much more expensive than the old one was. The values of the old ones have... Yeah, and also I got a bit of a deal because it was like end of year, they were on volume bonus. You're that guy off the telly. No, to be fair, <laughs> if you know the trade though, so yeah. here's a great tip for anyone listening, if you go to car dealers at the end of a year, under normal circumstances, we're in a slightly crazy position at the moment where there's artificially buoyed used car prices, Yeah, you've got the semiconductor shortage, which is also change things and also the prices of raw materials have gone up but yeah. generally speaking when things are on a slightly more even keel if you go into a car dealership at the end of the year they will have various bonuses they'll have a model bonus they'll have a volume bonus they'll have a finance bonus they'll have all sorts of bonuses there's generally a promotion right because nobody in their right mind buys a car in December fair because if you think if I bought a car in December 2019 if I waited one month I could have a 2020 car. Yeah. And it'll have a higher value when it comes to it. My 86 is a January car. Yeah, so everybody waits till the next year because it's that one year later. Yeah. And therefore, when you come to sell, it's worth a tiny bit more. So it's normally a huge amount of promotions mixed with the fact that dealers have all of these bonuses at the end of the year, which if you ask them nicely, often they'll share it with you. So a car can have an additional four, five, six thousand pounds worth of bonuses in it. Right. And they could give you five thousand pounds of that and you still let them have a profit because it's important that dealers keep their profit right and that's how it came about so that car was phenomenally cheap for what it was and it's lost two thousand pounds perks are now in the trade eh but i'm sharing it with yeah yeah, well this is why you're a a credible source of information on the telly as well going going so also end of quarters is the same so end of quarters are always good but end of year is the one it's like the the multi like the rollover bonus yeah so if you've got a good deal that's had a really good year they'll be in for every bonus and they can be quite generous because then they're just doing numbers basically so you can sell a car at quite a significant loss at the end of the year and still, still make a good ah good to know for when I eventually have some money it's top tip <laughs> pause top tips buy cars in December yeah buy convertibles in December when they're cheap I always used to sell it if I ever worked on Christmas Eve when I was in the garage I always used to sell it I had this conversation with someone recently actually I can't remember who it was we were talking about how over the Christmas lull so we did a Coffees and Cars with Triumph Motorbikes at their place in Hinkley and over the Christmas lull 
people haven't got anything to do so that's why we did the meet then it's like it's a nice opportunity for people to get out of the house gives them something to do cures a bit of boredom and not everybody enjoys Christmas so here's something nice and fun Jehovah's Plus, Witnesses they don't enjoy my family are Jehovah's Witnesses so they just get bank it's like a bank holiday yeah. I was, as a kid that's all we had was it's just a day off and the biggest challenge was finding milk <laughs> <laughs> and the only places that you could find milk were run by people that didn't who weren't Christian. Did they? So we had this weird little affinity with like other religious groups that weren't Christian. They were like, "Oh, we don't celebrate, so we're just going to open our shop." Do you not have presents at all? No. Oh, Got it throughout the year though. You. So, well, when's your equivalent then? Parents' wedding anniversary. But I did, but I didn't. Get so they don't have a religious thing. There's not like a this day, but most families will do their parents' wedding anniversary as like a present day okay. to give kids an opportunity. Why do your parents split up? It's frowned upon in the religion, so you're already in a pretty oh, really? rough place if your parents are divorced. <laughs> you can't quite philosophical now. We're entering a whole new territory for podcasts. I, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about what it was like being a Jehovah's Witness because people should understand how more than one way of life works. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to give, to give insight, no birthdays, no Christmas. You don't get birthdays? Don't get birthdays. What? Yeah, I didn't have my first birthday until I was 17. And I'd, I'd no longer practising and yeah. I had a girlfriend and all that, so they went... So you've oh. never had a birthday cake up until this point? No, no, never. And uh, for my... I think it was my 21st... Christmas cake. We were going to do, like, a kid's birthday because yeah. it was like, ah, oh, it's so nice. I mean, my then-girlfriend were on, like, a break, so I never got that either. I was like, oh, I've never had an actual kid's birthday party you know, with goodie bags and cake and things like that. Um, so, yeah, no, no Christmas, no birthdays. I didn't know the no birthdays then. I knew the no Christmas thing. Yeah, I, I can't so, like, remember. the worst job in the world is Jehovah's Witness kids entertainer then. That's going to be the, the... Well, weddings, you've got loads of them because yeah. they all get married at 18 because there's obviously no relations before marriage. So yeah. they all get married really young because teenagers are horny and they make stupid decisions in their youth, which then leads to loads of divorces in about 20 years' time. Yeah. And they all grow up and they go, oh, this is a bit crap, isn't it? That's the wrong one. Yeah, which is how my parents are split up. <laughs> so the only way that you can get divorced properly without kind of being kicked out... Murder. If you kill someone, yeah, they'll kick you out for that. Yeah. Basically, any of like the, the Ten Commandments. You well, break, it stays on divorce as well, doesn't it? Yeah, because you you don't really have to divorce them if they're dead. No. But if it's one person, if you're listening in, Jehovah's Witness. Thank you. <laughs> Top tip. Yeah. If you don't like your <laughs> Buy a car in December. Yeah. <laughs> and murdering your Jehovah's Witness spouse saves on the cost so, of divorce. Yeah, and you you might get kicked out of the religion and go to prison, but you won't have divorce papers. Okay. Um, but yeah, if someone commits adultery, divorce is allowed. So when my parents split up, the split up wasn't for that, but it wasn't until my dad like left the religion and met someone that my mum was like, ah, freedom, I can, within the, the eyes of the religion, I can properly yeah. be divorced. And then she's remarried and I've got a step. So now you've left, are you really enjoying Christmas and birthdays? I love it, yeah, yeah, it's great fun. I have this horrible fear around birthdays though, because I... I'm terrified of going, oh, I'm going to have a birthday party and then nobody comes. Because I didn't have to experience that oh, as a oh, kid. Yeah. I now have to experience it as an adult when I know what it's what could happen. And I'm like, oh, great, now I've got this horrible trauma of like, what if nobody comes? Or if it's just me on my own <laughs> at a bouncy castle? Well, I can't make it, sorry, mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm like, I, if you're going to do a birthday party, I don't want to know about it. Just don't tell me it's happening and let me arrive to either loads of people there or nobody there and you go oh no we're not doing a party so here's, a, here's a philosophical question so we've got massively off the subject that's alright the, the so if you did a surprise birthday for a Jehovah's Witness friend uh, yeah who didn't know 
and you didn't know because you hadn't asked. You just assumed you'd seen a driving license. Thought, a lovely surprise for my Jehovah's Witness friends. Their birthday next week. I'm going to organise a surprise party. What would that person then have to do as they arrive for the door and they shout surprise? What would be the correct thing to do? Oh, see, most Jehovah's Witnesses are quite polite. Yeah. So they'd probably be like, "Oh, thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Why are you all in my living room?" Um, I don't think they'd be all like blowing out the candles and stuff like that. They'd probably then go, "Look." I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, this, is, this is inappropriate. It's like turning up at like a Muslim family with, oh, I brought bacon. Like yeah. you probably I went to a Jewish wedding once, a really Orthodox Jewish wedding. And they came down the morning after the wedding. Everyone was having bacon. I was like, what's going on? Yeah, like, we've got to have it before the rabbi gets down. <laughs> so it turns out lots of Jewish people really like bacon. It's the same with like they just do it on the QT. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people who are belief. They have a belief system and they believe in. They have various different religions, but they don't take it too seriously. Yeah. There's a few Jehovah's Witnesses that aren't too strict on everything, but it's one of those where you don't publicly flout that yeah. fact. Like, yeah, the secret birthday. Yeah, yeah, take it with a pinch of salt. But the going. So they've got blackout curtains. Oh, <laughs> yeah, to hide the disco really lights. Quiet, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's kind but of a. Let me in through the back garden. Don't say that you're here. Just. just yeah. Just do really simple card tricks. <laughs> Although, like, we weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter as kids. Because of the witch. It's a wizard. Yeah. Even though it's fictitious. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Black magic and all that sort of stuff. So, think of Jehovah's Witnesses as, like, Christian plus. Yeah. They're really kind of strict on the Christian values. And the ones that aren't just tend to, like, demote to, like, Catholic or whatever. Like, they just go, ah, we believe in the guy, but I'm not bothered about all these rules. So I'm intrigued because I'm, like, a massive atheist, you see. That's... So I'm intrigued that if you got, like, a Jehovah's Witness and a Christian, like, in a conversation, would it be like... They have the same foundations. Like, the whole... The belief system is built around the same books and the same stories and the, the same principles. Is there collective worship in the same Not necessarily. And it's not as... Because, obviously religion has been used as a way to kind of not necessarily control the masses but you'll have a huge uneducated population yeah but there's a huge uneducated population that then have this authority figure telling them oh i can read latin so this is what the book says and all you can't read latin so you don't know what these papers say which is why it remained in latin for so long till king james came along and he was like right we're all going to read this and we're all going to kind of rewrote it a bit at the same time a lot of it's been rewritten in different ways and tweaks and the Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to maintain a lot of like accessible language so it's not ye old and thou and all that it's yeah. thus and the proper way of speaking nowadays because it was only started in 1914 okay I didn't um, it was such a young thing yeah and there's a part of me that's very kind of suspicious that it was started as a way of getting out of the war because they they abstained <laughs> oh, from yeah. conflict so they conscientious objector on conscientious, grounds okay. yeah so there's a big part of me that's like ah oh, maybe that was a very conveniently timed <laughs> thing to happen oh there's a war on right we're starting a religion lads yeah, we're very much <laughs> very against war. it yeah but on the flip side a lot of them were in the concentration camps really because of their religious beliefs which is odd because they're Christian so it's it's got two sides to it. Like. So in a, like a theological off then between a Christian and a Jehovah's Witness. The Jehovah's Witness would be stricter, I think. To the that's why they don't do Christmas because they believe that he was born in like September and Christmas Great was done in. I couldn't couldn't attest to it. I was June. I was born at Le Mans time, yeah. not at Le Mans at the same time as the race. <laughs> 
which is why I'm going this year for my 30th. It's the centenary of the race, and it's my 30th birthday the weekend after the race. Yeah. So I'm looking how this has gone from cars to like religious studies. It's great. That's the perks of having a casual chat podcast. The the idea of this is is brilliant. There's no structure to it, and we can go in whatever tangent we want because it's my podcast. Affected by any of the things mentioned in this podcast. I have had a message from someone who was a Jehovah's Witness once, saying, "Oh, I heard you talking about it, and I would." I would completely understand if you don't want to follow me or talk to me anymore. I was like, no. I'm- is, it, is it the Watchtower that James was That's the one, yeah. yeah. Well, they come and knock on your door and say, would you like to talk about that? So I, I have this this thing that I would say to anybody that encounters a Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door with a Watchtower, right? I think of it. Like Black Tower, the wine. Be <laughs> Can we come in with this bottle of wine? Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Come and talk about whatever you want. Yeah, Let's bring the wine. With wine in, um, that's really going wrong. Need to rebrand. Well, if you think about it from their perspective, they genuinely believe that they're saving your life if they convert you across. Like if they can bring you into the fold, yeah. and you practice what they practice and believe what they believe, they genuinely believe that they're going to save your life by doing so. Which is a lovely thought. If you think of it from that perspective, it takes a lot of the hostility that a lot of people have, and the, oh, it's very inconvenient you knocking on my door on a Saturday morning. Let's say, for example, you knew a big catastrophe was coming. There's a meteor coming. You go and tell as many people as you can. Yeah. That's what they're, they're, the mindset behind all of that is. Go and spread the word. Tell as many people as you can. Let's let's try and yeah. save people from the Armageddon that's coming. So that's where that kind of mentality comes from. And having that perspective around it often helps yeah. not well, be well, as annoyed by it. Anyway, I don't have any faith whatsoever. I've got a lot of friends that do have it. And you know people have them. Yeah. That's your vicar. So you think, well, and you've got to respect that because obviously he genuinely believes for yeah, he's been a guest on here and we, yeah. we talked about my, the belief system and how I was raised a Jehovah's Witness and I no longer believe in like a, in a God or anything I very much more subscribe to the scientific histories and the, the things that we find out and we learn and but that's because I'm more evidence-based. I want to see a thesis, like a proof of thesis, yeah. or disproof of thesis. So I want, I want facts. And I, like, I think Ricky Gervais said, you know, if all of the books disappeared on science and religion and literally the library's empty and the internet empty overnight and in the next thousand years we start them back fresh. up again, start fresh, all the scientific theories will be the same theories because they're based on the same principles and the same constants and yeah. mathematical theorem. And obviously religion might be different because we might have come up with a better story. Yeah, well, I found a, a video recently. It was the same kind of story happens every couple of thousand years yeah the Egyptians had it as well didn't they with Horus guy born on the 25th yeah. and all, all of the things that make that story they've happened at least like three um, world powers so to speak so you've got like the ancient Greeks the Egyptians and then the Romans obviously adopted Christianity yeah. and the reason Christmas is on in December is because that's when the pagan holidays were and the Romans wanted to bring the pagans into kind of the mix without it causing so much difference in hostility it was a way to get them on board with the Roman takeover so they went right we'll do some of our holidays history this is the best podcast ever <laughs> but the amount of things we've discussed in this topic it's great we've talked about cars, car dynamics theology, how to drive yeah. television religious history. history that sort of stuff I, I'm, and we're talking from this. this is like a whole new listener group we've got now just uh, this is the only episode that's ever going to go in this direction I reckon though I don't think I'm bringing on more people that go into these I'd love to discuss with Adam like this because he's he's great because obviously you've got a converted or lapsed a full atheist and then get a full on he's great and and Adam's he's not judgmental which is why I like him so much is that he's not 
I, I'm a, a, a God-fearing man, therefore yeah. you should be as well. He's not in that. No, I love that. He, that aggressive. He mind. Yeah. I, I always think when you go into any church there and you look at that lightning conductor, you're thinking even you're not sure. Yeah, yeah. If if you if you really believed in it, yeah, you wouldn't need that. Yeah. <laughs> that's based on science. That strip that, of copper yeah, that's and right, in there. But even there, you know what? We're just going to have a small little just a safety thing. net, just in case. Just, just in case it's not true. So even they know. Even they're thinking actually. Maybe. Well, worst case scenario, we, we want to at least keep the church safe. It's a it's a nice bit of land. Yeah. <laughs> Which I learned recently is where, you know, when you see Glebe Street and Glebe Avenue, yeah. that's from the church selling off land. So it used to be, there was a, a parcel of land outside of a church and they would farm it to sell produce and pay the church to keep going. And eventually that was no longer viable, so they would sell that land and it was called a Glebe. So if you ever find a place called like Glebe Street or Glebe Avenue, it's probably nearby a church. Wow. Yeah, I found that out like this week. Sizzle, you're listening to History Today <laughs> with Tacona. And not even on Discovery Plus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so these are the, the fun ways. And to come right back full circle to the very first thing that I said, this is why I do this podcast, is to act as a conversation. I'm not trying to be too professional. I'm not trying to have this as a proper interview and I'm a journalist. I, I'm not trying to be that. There's a hundred of those as well, that's the thing. Yeah. And I imagine they're, we're they're quite same. boring because you have the same answer for every question. Yeah. Whereas I'll take us on wonderful journeys into Amazing different tangents. ways. Yeah. yeah. And people will find out more about the people that they're interested in. So I had, I got a call from a PR agency, oddly enough, who have someone that I've already spoken to on their books and they'd forgotten that we'd had the conversation. Because it was one of those like in passing at Bista. Yeah. Oh, do you want to come on? Yeah, yeah, yeah that'll be fine. And then you, it, who's anyone good? Chris Pollitt. I love Chris. Yeah. yeah, so he's going to come on at some point. But um, the company that he does some work with, the guy gave me some Hot Wheels cars for our charity raffle. Nick Familiar. Bingo. Yeah. Um, so Nick called me and he said, Love "Oh, I was chatting with Chris recently. I, I was listening to the Stephen Dobie episode because him and Stephen are pals. And I actually learned things about him that I didn't know because obviously I'm having a casual conversation, so it can go in any direction." <laughs> And then he went, oh, I've, I've spoke to Chris and he, I suggested that he comes on. He, yeah, he'd be up for it. I went, yeah, I know, he's, I've already asked him. Like, what? I went, yeah, it was like just a casual chat whilst we were doing something else. Yeah. But I'd already got the yes, so I wasldn't like then chasing him. Yeah. It would just be, oh, when we can book it. That would be a great interview. It would be brilliant. And he's more northern than I am, so that would be a fun one for people that to was listen to. a brilliant YouTuber, because Chris has gone into doing YouTube now. Yeah, and he does it with Car and Classic. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to that again, it all comes back to authenticity. I think that's the thread. The red thread of today's podcast is authenticity. authenticity. He's just so good because he's him. Yeah. It's Chris being Chris. Well, did you see... He did a video on... It was... Oh, I forgot what it was called. It was like the ultimate man cave uh, for car restoration or something like that. And it was a guy with a Rover SD1, Koenig 928, a couple of XJs, all of that in like this thing, this storage unit. And then they also have another place where they're restoring and building and selling cars and this and the other that's my mate who does my Renault for me oh really so Chris is, <laughs> like Chris has been down and done a little video on some of the cars that he's got and I was like oh it's weird because I go there it's just like I, I roll in alright I've got another problem lads and they're like oh here we go but everyone knows everyone that's the yeah. thing about this it's so much fun and Chris is lovely and they did a car and classic had a big space at the scramble not this one because collecting cars have now got a partnership with Bista so they've basically got exclusivity but the one before Car and Classic had a big spot and they had Herbie playing on the outdoor screen and stuff yeah. like that and Chris did like a walk around and they got to my Renault 
and I've put a sticker on the door that says Paris spec. So there's a piece of plastic trim missing. <laughs> and every time I see friends and that, they go, this is exactly how they look in Paris. You go to Paris, yeah. and they look, they've got little dents and bits of trim missing and then a bit rough around the edges. So I, put, I made a sticker that says Paris spec and it's in the shape of the Eiffel Tower. And the guy from Car and Classic went, so Chris, what makes a Renault 5 Paris spec? And he went, probably beat to shit. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> accurate, exactly absolutely right. accurate. <laughs> At least he's honest. Um, but he was very nice about what we do and Tacona and stuff because it's literally got stickers on it you make some Um, really sweet merch as well I'm trying my best I have learned all this from scratch so when I was down in Brighton for UPS I uh, I was having a chat with a couple of mates oh one of the microphones has switched off I think it might be yours oh no oh it might have died probably because it's too long Uh, that'll be it the battery will have died on it yeah that's definitely you you just cut it there then can't you yeah well it's probably like a usable. Then you can just put like a, a tail on it, can't you? I'll just, it'll just be. This is where the microphone died. I'm very sorry. <laughs> is it on fully? Oh yeah, we're on the red on that. Yeah. So Paul's microphone died, <laughs> and it's it's not going to. I wonder how far we got. Oh, that's yeah. all right. Yeah. You should do you do it loud, because you've got it on your thing, don't you? you can cut okay, it. I've plugged it into a cable, so you can do the outro with me. Okay. So. We're going to have to do an outro because Paul's mic died and we don't know when because it could have happened an hour ago and we still wouldn't know when. So that was the equipment telling us the podcast was going on too long. Yeah, the equipment's told us it's gone too long, get back on track, cut it off now. So my mum's probably got a shepherd's pie on the go waiting for me. She's like, where is he? Well, funny if it is tea time. So it's time for us all to go back for tea. Yeah, it's dark outside. It's. it's I was clean shaven when we started. Got a beard now. He's got a couple of grey hairs coming through. <laughs> More than a couple, mate. <laughs> but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you, Paul. And thank you so much for coming and meeting us and sitting down and chatting for nearly two hours mate, on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks for having me. No, it's been great. And any time we have a chance to see you, it's always fun. So I'll see you the next car show. Oh, absolutely. Right, I'm going to click stop there.